How do you take a good set of baseball projections and make them better? I'll ask Derek Carty about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 23rd. It's show number 35 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Derek Carty, the developer of The Bat and The Bat X projection systems, which you can find at Roto Grinders, EV Analytics, Fangraphs, and The Athletic. We'll discuss building better projections, auctions versus drafts, stabilization rates of metrics, how StatCast metrics are often misused by fantasy players, and even more. We'll have our MarketWatch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including Starlin Castro out for the year, Jacob deGrom and Nick Castellanos out for the next little while anyway, and Mookie Betts not quite out yet. Henry Murphy has news from the American League, including Alex Kirilov, Jaron Duran, and Brandon Marsh. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Miami right-handed starter Edward Cabrera. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about Cleveland's new name. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The Cleveland professional baseball team has a new name. We gotta talk some baseball. They'll be the Cleveland Guardians and it'll start at the end of the season. I'll have my reaction in extra innings towards the top of the ninth at the end of the show, but in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Derek Carty, the developer of the Bat and the Bat X projection systems. Derek, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks so much for having me, Patrick. I appreciate it. Let's get started with a, a little overview. How long have you been playing fantasy baseball? Uh, since I was in high school, which is uh, longer ago than I'd like to admit at this point. Probably, uh, I don't know, 15 years or so, maybe close to 20. Well, <laughs> still way less long than my high school days, I can tell you that. Uh, which formats do you prefer playing? Uh, definitely auction leagues. I'm not a big not a big fan of drafts. I like the uh, just the the strategic element of of auction leagues. I don't like getting sniped on a player in a draft. I don't like having to structure my roster in a in a particular way. So I like auctions, and I like deeper leagues, AL, NL only type leagues over mixed leagues for me for sure. I hear what you're saying about the uh, auction leagues. The thing I like about them is the sense of control that they give you. I think it's partially illusory because you're still responding to what everybody else at the draft is doing, but you can respond to it in a way to compete for a player. And in straight drafts, of course, if somebody says, you know, Akil Badu in the 22nd round, you're just out of luck, even if you had uh, a spot reserved for him and everything like that. That's why I, I still prefer auctions, although circumstances require in experts leagues that you play both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly will play draft leagues, you know, for, for expert leagues if I need to or whatever, but, uh, for the most part, I'm, I'm much more focused on, on the auction, you know, even in a draft, you know, even though 
auctions, you have to respond to what other people are doing. At least in an auction, you can decide whether you want to be in on the $40 player or if you just want a roster of, of 15 to $20 players. Like you can structure it however you want. Uh, you don't have to take a first round, you know, quote unquote, first round caliber player if you don't want to in an auction. If you don't think that's the, the optimal way to build a lineup, you don't, you don't have to do it that way. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that you make because uh, I played in a league years ago that was a draft league, but before the draft, in the run-up to the draft, and then we tried one year even during the draft, you could trade your draft slots. So if you wanted to, oh. you know, package up a second round pick with your 20th round pick and get, you know, nine and 10, you were allowed to do that, which gave you a little bit more of that flexibility in determining exactly how you wanted to build your roster, you know, avoiding the risk at the top of the table, but uh, eliminating some of the risk at the bottom end of the table in favor of something, you know, a little closer to the middle. It was a lot of fun, especially the one, when we allowed it the one year where we allowed it during the draft, you know, you could come up, your draft was pick was coming up. It's like the NFL draft. After, or you know, uh, not Major League Baseball, they don't allow trading. But the NHL, the NFL, you watch the draft. Oftentimes, there's teams making trades right at the last minute to to swap their spots or to move a guy over. This was a keeper league, so you could package your, you know, coming up seventh rounder plus. Uh, uh, some pitcher or something and get a much better pitcher back in exchange for dropping down in the draft. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I uh, I like that a lot. That that would make a standard draft a lot, lot more interesting in my opinion. You know, definitely more of a strategic element. You know, closer to to an auction format. So I I would certainly be more on board with that than than the regular you know run of the mill snake. If you ever try to set it up, uh, make sure that you have somebody to run your draft for you who's not in the draft because there ends up being an awful lot of paperwork. And the one <laughs> year we tried it, boy, oh boy, there was a lot of arguments about, hey, you traded me that pick. No, I didn't, you know, and so because nobody was writing it all down accurately enough. So if you're going to do that, make sure that you have somebody to monitor your draft and keep track of that stuff. Uh, how many leagues are you playing this year, Derek? I'm only in three. Um, you know, I, uh, I do a lot of DFS type stuff these days, a lot of sports betting type stuff. And so I really try to, I've kind of whittled my, my season log long leagues down to, you know, just, just kind of a, a handful. I do labor, I do tout wars and I do uh, one other league. It's a, uh, uh, GDD. It's like a bunch of, uh, it's not a, like an official expert league, but it's a lot of like industry guys in it. Um, and, uh, it's a lot of fun. What does GDD mean? I haven't heard of that. I'm trying to remember. It's Gotham Diamond District, I think. Uh, Steve Casalino, who's at a lot of these uh, first pitch Arizona events and whatnot, he runs it. It's, uh, it's a bunch of industry people. Rick Wolf and Glenn Coltner in it. Uh, Derek Van Riper's in it. Um, Errol Cohen, who does ATC, is my my uh, my partner in it this year. Um, a lot of guys like that. Rick and Glenn are in an awful lot of leagues. Yeah, I don't know how many they do, but it seems like a lot. <laughs> Every league I look at, it seems like there's Wolf Colton and almost always at the top of the scurrying too. So uh, whatever they're doing, they're doing it really well. Of course, we know that they've got lots of championships and titles, as you do, as a matter of fact, uh, in, in experts leagues over the years. Uh, how are you doing in 2021 uh, in those leagues, in the leagues that you're playing in? Yeah, I mean, it's still... Uh... You know, there's still a lot, a lot of season left to go, but fingers crossed, I'm doing really well so far. I'm in first or second in every league, and uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully, I take home another title or two this year. Which uh, tout league are you in? NL only. Oh, good for you. That's a tough league. 
what are you what are you thinking uh, as we come up to the trading deadline about the likelihood of players moving out of your league doesn't matter if they move out in tout wars rules you get to keep their stats but what uh, players do you think are possible to be moving into the national league yeah it's gonna be interesting to see and i kind of have uh split split motivations here because in labor i spent i spent big really early on willie adamas which has uh which has worked out really well um in tout wars i still i think i have the hammer i have the most money so in labor i kind of don't want like a big mover because i'm not going to be in on them in tout wars i kind of do because uh, you know i'll be able to get whoever i want so i really don't know i mean you could see a name like joey gallo maybe or uh I don't know. I guess, I guess we're going to have to see. And how are you doing in your, uh, in your daily play and in your betting you talked about? Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been going well. You know, this season has been, uh, you know, obviously a weird one with the, uh, you know, coming off of the COVID stuff last year, some players sitting out, some players just kind of having, you know, weird 2020 seasons because, you know, either they didn't have the same conditioning they normally would or, you know, whatever else, the sample sizes were smaller. So there were a lot of challenges coming into this year. Um, plus this whole sticky substance ban has kind of thrown a monkey wrench into a lot of things. But overall, it's been it's been a good year. It's been a strong year. You know, very happy with, uh, with how things are going. I talked a couple of weeks ago with Dave Potts. Uh, of course, you know of Dave Potts, a very outstanding DFS player, outstanding fantasy baseball player in general. And he told me that there are nights when he puts three or 400 lineups into DFS in across the various platforms. Uh, what kind of depth are you playing at? Yeah, I'm not playing at the depth of, of Dave, and, and he's definitely doing that in, in GPPs and tournament formats. I've always been more of a cash game player, you know, play one lineup across a bunch of different contests and, uh, and you know, just, just try to, you know, eke out a small profit over a long period of time as opposed to uh, trying to, you know, bink uh, a, big, a big jackpot, you know, once every couple months or something like that. And you know, it's just a matter of personal preference for me, but there are plenty of people, you know, who, who play the way Dave does and do really well with it. So, you know, it's just, just kind of what, how you want to approach it. I have to say, when I think about it, I don't play DFS at all because I can't stand the <laughs> relentless stress of it looking every night and just, you know, fretting all the time. So I leave that to younger people uh, like you and Dave, but it strikes me that if I were to play, I think I would go with your approach if I was, especially if I was confident in my ability to build lineups. And I'm really interested that you say you take one lineup and scatter it across a whole bunch of, of, of entries rather than different lineups going into different entries. Uh, why did you opt to go that route is, uh, is the question for me. I mean, that's just the way when I first started playing, um, you know, w was a way to build a bankroll. You know, I didn't start with a lot of money, you know, just a few hundred bucks. And it was just an easy way to kind of gradually build up a bankroll to be able to play with. Um, and it's just kind of the way my mindset is, you know, I'm, I'm not looking to get rich off of this. You know, I'm, I'm perfectly content, um, you know, doing my content, making sports bets, you know, just kind of, I have my hands in a lot of different pots. Obviously I do lots of different things. And so uh, first it, it takes a lot more effort to build those 400 lineups and make them good plus EV lineups. Um, so, so right away, it's just more effort to do that. And uh, it's just not my mindset. You know, I'm not, I'm not the kind of person who needs to, to, you know, who has that like try to strike it rich kind of thing. You know, for me, I'm, I'm just content kind of moving along, doing my thing and, you know, just making, 
making consistent money over time. But even if you're taking the approach of avoiding the tournaments in favor of your 50-50s or, or those double-up type of formats, you could enter 100 lineups in 100 contests, but it sounds like you uh, really reduce that amount of lineups basically down to one, if I'm reading you correctly. And I'm wondering why just one lineup, even if you're entering uh, a, bunch of, uh, a bunch of entries in uh, 50-50s. Well, mostly because um, in 50-50s or, or double-ups or, or head-to-heads or whatever you want to do, um, I mean, edges are getting smaller. People are getting smarter. It's, it's you know, harder to win. And if you're entering 100 different lineups, um, they're not all going to be of the same quality. You know, your 100th best lineup is going to be worse than your, your first best lineup. And so... Um, I don't see any real need to uh, to water myself down like that. I, I think you're going to lose money over time if you're trying to play that many lineups in in cash games because uh, you know your hundredth best lineup is not necessarily going to be better than someone else's best. So you you really I, I think you play your best lineup, um, you play it consistently, and and oh you know you're going to have obviously swings from day to day, especially if you are in. Um, 50 fifties or double ups, you know, you're either going to, you know, double your money every day or you're, you're going to lose everything that day. But over time, that's going to even out. And so um, I think in terms of, you know, risk management or diversification or, or however you want to um, think about it, you know, if you're thinking about doing a whole bunch of lineups, um, I would much rather uh, spread out that risk just over a longer period, a longer sample, as opposed to trying to do it on a daily basis with a bunch of lineups. I have to say that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you mentioned that you started playing the game back in high school in the midst of time, but what was your path from playing the game to analyzing the game and then turning it into a, a way to make a living? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I started playing in high school. I'd play, you know, just in the league with my friends, and uh, I'd always lose. I'd always do really, really poorly, and I didn't know why. Like, I'd study the stats. I'd be like, okay, last year this guy did this, and so this year... I'm going to expect him to do something similar, I guess. And uh, that didn't work for obvious reasons at this point. Um, and so uh, eventually, um, you know, I, I was frustrated. And I talked to the guy who was always winning every year. And he was, I guess, nice about it. He was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, uh, I use sabermetrics. You know, read this book, Moneyball, uh, the old book by Michael Lewis. And that was the first time I realized that you can use uh, math to analyze baseball players. And I was always a really good student. I liked math. Um, and so I was like, oh, this makes so much sense. Like you can actually do this in a, in a smart way as opposed to kind of just guessing, which is what I was doing. So, um, you know, so I, I started, you know, I read Moneyball. I thought it was great. I started reading different, um, you know, online publications, Hardball Times and Baseball Prospectus and stuff like that. Um, and then I just decided, uh, you know, I had some ideas of my own. I thought it would be cool to try to, you know, I, I at the time I didn't really see it becoming, you know, a, a full on profession the way it is now for me. But, you know, I just started a little blog. I started putting up my thoughts. Um, it got noticed pretty quickly by by the Hardball Times, which uh, eventually was bought up by Fangraphs. I think it's defunct now, unfortunately. Um, but at the time, that was my favorite website. I thought it was great. You know, they, they were uh, looking to start a fantasy section, and so they asked me to come on board and start that. And, uh, and so it all just kind of, you know, snowballed from there. I got noticed by, by other places and had more opportunities. And, um, you know, eventually... Uh, you know, I kind of found my niche in the industry with, with projections and, uh, you know, it's, it's worked out really well. 
I have a similar sort of Genesis story, except the guy in my league who always won was very jealous about guarding his secrets, and I actually stumbled onto them by accident. His, his was Baseball HQ. At the time, uh, it was a like faxed out kind of newsletter type of thing. And uh, once I got into that, I started realizing, just as you did, hey, there's a way to to systematize this, to start thinking about it in rational mathematical terms and and do that kind of thinking about the game. And it really does, I think it not only improves your ability to play successfully in fantasy baseball, but it just makes the game more fun to watch as a fan. Yeah, it really does. It uh, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Derek Cardi. And Derek, uh, you had a presentation at PitchCon, uh, that's a, um, an online convention that was held uh, in 2020, and I took a look at your presentation, and boy, you raised an unbelievable amount of issues that I thought were super interesting, and one of the first things you said that I wrote down was, a lot of fantasy players and baseball bettors are misusing StatCast data. That really caught my eye. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so, I mean, StatCast data is, is obviously really cool. And I think some people um, get too excited by it, and and they they think it's something that it's not. I, I feel like a lot of times um, you see like fantasy players kind of phrase it as like uh, stats versus skills, where like the old stuff that we used to use, you know, WOBA or ISO or strikeout rate or xFIP or like whatever you want to, like you know, just like traditional statistics. Um, they're like stats. But if you look at StatCast, now we're looking at skills. And so this is exactly who the player is. Like his launch angle is 15 degrees and his exit velocity is, you know, 98 miles per hour. Like that is the player's skill and that's who he is. And that's not really true. Like these things, launch angles and and exit velocities and sprint speeds and everything else are great. And they help us learn more about a player, but they're not who the player is. I think a lot of times people assume that, um, because they're this, you know, fancy new, new thing where we're using technology and we're tracking what's actually happening on the field. That this is like the player's actual underlying talent level, but they don't understand that these things are prone to sample size variance as well. Just because the player this year has a, you know, a 98 mile per hour exit velocity, that doesn't mean that going forward he's going to have a 98-mile-per-hour exit velocity. You have to regress it. You have to account for sample size. You have to account for aging. You, you know, and, and I think a lot of people, they try to um, derive more meaning than we actually are able to from these numbers, as great as they are. I think that is an important point that it seems like I mean, you mentioned uh, traditional stats like ISO and stuff like that. I'm old enough to remember when the traditional stats were still home runs, RBIs, and so forth, and we started dipping our fingers into what we called skills metrics, the ability to throw strikes, the ability to avoid striking out or to get strikeouts if you're a pitcher and those kind of things. And at that time, I think we did make the mistake of, of saying that those stats, which are still just stats, are somehow indicative of the player's actual talent. And there's a lot more nuance to it, which I think these new metrics are starting to develop. But again, we it's easy to fall into that trap of, now I understand what this player is. And especially when you talk about something like average exit velocity, somebody says, this guy's average exit velocity is 95 miles an hour. Therefore, I have an understanding of what kind of hitter he is. 
you have to ask yourself, well, what's the shape of the curve of that average? You know, is it a, is it a gigantically tall, thin hill with a median right exactly at 95 where everything's within, you know, five miles an hour of it? But it isn't probably in most cases. It's much wider. There's longer tails and, and, a, and a shorter median. And people need to understand that average means average. And you have to understand how that fits into max and min and all, all of those kind of questions that sometimes people don't think all the way through. Right, exactly. I mean, especially when it comes to launch angle, like average launch angle is not as useful as some people seem to think it is, you know, the, um, you know, the, I guess, stratification of the launch angle, the, the, the distribution of the launch angle is a, uh, is more important than the average launch angle itself, you know, hitting, hitting the ball in the right spots, even only, you know, some of the time is better than hitting it. Well, I don't know how to describe it, but you, you want to hit the ball up in the air in a particular launch angle, but you don't want it to be too high and you don't want it to be too low. And, you know, the average is not always indicative of, of whether the guy is hitting the ball at the, the best angles, you know, at, you know, the right amount of time. I feel like I didn't say that super well, but, uh, you know, it's the distribution matters. The distribution matters. No, I think that's exactly right. And I think it's exactly the point I was making about exit velocity. If you talk about average launch angle, you're, you've got to understand, is that average centered on an on a range that's narrowly within what we call barrels or within a productive range? Or is it a very wide range from pop-ups in the air to, you know, worm burners on the ground? And it happens to be in the middle where it looks like it's a pretty good launch angle. But if it only happens occasionally, it's not as good as somebody who has perhaps a slightly worse average launch angle, but has it more narrowly focused. Right. And, and players can change too, you know, right. just because a guy has done one thing for a while doesn't mean that's what he's going to do forever. Like Vlad, Vlad Jr. Is the perfect example. Uh, my projection system, the bad X using Statcast, love Vlad Jr. Coming into this year. And everyone was like, how can it love him this much? He's never done this before. Like, how are you projecting him for over 30 home runs when no other projection system is doing that? And when his launch angle is so low? And it's like, well, for one thing, he was getting unlucky with that low launch angle to begin with. And also, he's a young guy. Like, he's got all this power. Like, he's, he's going to try, probably, to start getting the ball in the air more. He's not going to stay this guy forever. Like people just assume that like because his launch angle was so low that like his ceiling was low like he couldn't become a better hitter somehow and uh you know it just it just blows my mind the way people sometimes put themselves into a box with this stuff I think Guerrero is an interesting example because he was so young when he started uh, out in the major leagues and we start seeing this particular combination of massive exit velocity even as, as a young player but the launch angle was a concern for a lot of analysts but gosh, he was only like 21 years old and he was in the big leagues and he was hitting the ball hard, though nobody could doubt that. And I wonder why people discount the possibility that somebody with the kind of obvious hand-eye coordination that it takes just to hit the ball hard, never mind what the angle is, he's hitting the ball hard a lot. If he's got that kind of skill, it seems like adjusting launch angle is a relatively minor change because... It, it, it seems like uh, running speed, you know, you can't teach it or you can teach it, but only to a limited degree. And if you have a kid who's hitting the ball as hard as he is, I don't know if you were at first pitch the year we went to the Fall Stars game. I think it was out in Surprise. And 
Guerrero hit a line drive off the left field fence. It took like two seconds to get there, and it sounded like somebody thumping a bass drum when it hit. And you think to yourself, man, this guy can hit. And then you look at his launch angle and you think, oh, but, you know, if there's going to be line drives at best, there's not going to be enough home runs. How did the bat, or the bat X, you said, uh, determine that the launch angle would increase enough to get into that barrel zone a lot more often and 30 home runs was a possibility. It seems like quite an interesting inference to draw. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. A lot of it is like formulaic. It kind of does its own thing. I just kind of try to interpret it. Um, but I, I think part of it was it did, it, it, did, it did project a bit of a launch angle increase just based on um, aging curves and how historically you know players have kind of done with this sort of thing um, but also it just thought even if Vlad didn't increase his launch angle at all, even if he kept it exactly the same, that he was going to see a power spike because that launch angle paired with, um, the distribution of the launch angle and his exit velocity distribution and all the other things that it looks at. Um, it thought that Vlad should have hit quite a few more home runs in his first, uh, you know, his first, however many major league at bats, uh, than he actually did. And so I think a lot of people made the mistake of saying, okay, well, his launch angle's low and he hasn't hit a lot of home runs. And so if he doesn't increase the launch angle, the home runs aren't going to be there. Um, where the bad X was like, it doesn't matter. Even if he doesn't increase the launch angle, the home runs are going to be there. And so I think that was a big part of it and kind of a, a logical step that a lot of people didn't, uh, didn't make. Would that likelihood in your projection engines be different for an older player who had a more established uh, baseline of launch angle? And it, does it feel like it's more unlikely that a player is going to be able to adjust the launch angle at age 27 after three or four years of being in a certain range? Um, not necessarily. Um, I mean, yes, yeah, some older players are just going to be set in their ways, but because these things are somewhat stable, um, because they can change over time, uh, we see it with older players, um, you know, sometimes. Uh, a great example was was Joey Votto. Joey Votto is an older player. He's one of the oldest players in the league, probably. Was he almost 40 years old, probably 38 years old or something like that? Um, the bad X was really high on Joey Votto coming into this year, and he was free in every draft. Like, people just didn't think Joey Votto was anything. He's just an old, boring player. Um, but in 2020, you look at what his StatCast data was, he made a lot of real improvements. He made improvements with his launch angles, even with his exit velocities a little bit. Um, and, uh, you know, his, his home run pace in 2020 was the best it had been in years. And, and the bat was really buying into, the bat X was really buying into uh, some of his, his stat cast changes being um, at least, you know, partially legitimate. And it really loved Vado relative to other systems, relative to ADP in particular. And, and he's had a good year so far. He's having the best year he's had probably in, in maybe four or five years. And, and the power has been there. You know, he's dealt with injuries. So like the raw home run total isn't high. He's got 12 so far, but he has 12 in less than 300 plate appearances. He hit 15 in 2019 in over 600. He hit 12 in 2018 in over 600. So like um, the, the changes have really stuck for him. So uh, I'm, Votto's a guy that I'm really, really high on and uh, is hope, I'm hoping for a big second half out of him. 
He's an interesting case too, a former batting champion, a guy who famously, I think he went whole seasons without ever hitting a pop-up. So we knew that he had extraordinary bat control and bat-to-ball skill. And I wonder if a guy like that has an easier time adjusting as he ages to, to change his profile than a less skilled player at getting bat-to-ball. So instead of a, if you're a career 300 hitter at age 29 or 35 or whatever it is it might be a, a little harder if your career batting average is 240 than if it's 310 or whatever Vados was yeah absolutely um i mean i just i think there's so many reasons to like a guy like this older guys who can hit gotta like them coming into a, a lot of drafts it's something to keep in mind in your uh, presentation and just now you mentioned uh, stability which you defined as how quickly a stat becomes reliable as a descriptor of the player uh, you mentioned in fact sprint speed one of the stat cast metrics gets stable after five games or so but launch angle and exit velocity takes around 30 or so games to stabilize and home run percent isn't stable till 50 or more BABIP 300 or more games these are all hitter stats. Is there a mirror on how quickly these same stats stabilize for pitchers allowing particular launch angles, exit velocities, barrels, babips, and so forth? Yeah, there definitely is. Um, they don't stabilize as quickly as they do um, for hitters, um, especially the exit velocity. Launch angle uh, stabilizes pretty quickly for pitchers, same as it does for hitters, um, which makes sense. I mean, it's something we've known for a long time. Launch angle is basically just... Uh, basically just fancy ground ball percentage or fancy fly ball percentage. And we've used them as kind of, you know, quote unquote skill indicators for a long time, because we know that pitchers can, um, can control that type of thing based on uh, where they're locating their pitches and the types of pitches that they're throwing. You know, if you're a sinker baller, who's, uh, you know, throwing your, your sinker, you know, low in the zone, you're going to generate a lot of ground balls and you're going to generate a low launch angle. Um, so, you know, that, that is definitely uh, um, something that we can look at on the pitcher side as well. Even after a game threshold is reached or an at-bat threshold or a plate appearance threshold batter's faced, and it's deemed enough to establish stability for a particular stat, I'm assuming, just from what I know in my limited math skills, there's going to be variation over any subsequent period that we choose to plot, and we'd expect that level of variability to decrease as the period gets longer. More stability, less variability over 50 games than over five. How do we quantify the level of variability that we can tolerate while still calling a stat stable? Right. So, I mean, there's no, there's no magic number. This isn't a binary thing where, um, you know, it's, it's not stable right up until the point where it's stable. You know, it's just, it reaches this magic number and then all of a sudden we can trust it. It's a, it's more of a spectrum. And, and I think a lot of times people misunderstand what, what, what statistics people like me talk about when we say that a stat is stable or, or this is, you know, the, the level of stability, it has to reach, you know, 30 games until it's stable or something like that. When we say something like that, you know, it takes X number of games or plate appearances for a stat to become quote unquote stable. Um, what we're saying is that once you reach that point, that is the point where what the player has actually done is equally predictive of what he's going to do in the future as just assuming that he is league average, pretending you know nothing about the guy at all. And so that stabilization point isn't actually telling us, well, okay, this is exactly who the player is. It's saying, no, okay, right now our best guess of the player is taking half of him and half of a league average player, and that is our best guess. And so that's something that I think gets lost on a lot of people. And so, uh, 
you know, once you reach that stabilization point, like, great, but it's not everything. Like, you can't just take it at face value now. Okay, well, let's look into this a little more. You say that the 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 metric, the stabilization of the metric, is a blend of league average plus the player himself. So what does that mean when we say, okay, exit velocity has stabilized after these 31 games? What can we safely infer about the next 31 games and the 31 games after that or the 31 games on some kind of rolling method? Right, so if all we knew about the player was just his last 30 games of exit velocity. Let's say that his exit velocity over those games is 100 miles per hour and league average is 90 miles an hour. So at that point, if we take half and half, our best guess of what he's going to do going forward is 95 mile per hour exit velocity, which is not 100. It's not the 100 that a lot of people say, oh, it's stable now. He's a 100 mile per hour hitter. Like I know that about him now. No, you don't. He's 95. And that's true of cross all the stats, launch angle, all of them tend yep, to stabilize in this fashion. About stabilization of, of anything that, that is what we're talking about. Um, and, and obviously we know more than just his last 30. We know, um, we have years and years of data on these guys and we know their age and we know their, um, you know, their different, different things just about their profile as a hitter. And so a good projection will account for all of these things you want to account for the historical data, obviously weighing older data less usually. You want to account for the player's age and, and how aging curves work and, and all that sort of thing. But uh, you know, when we talk about stabilization, that is, that is what we mean um, you know, when we say it. Okay, so if we go one step further, so the stat stabilizes, we'll say over 30 games, which is what, 100 plate appearances or so, 120, something like that. So if we're comfortable saying that the next period of that same length is going to be somewhere between that level and league average, halfway is what you've said. What about when we have an entire season to look at? So we look at uh, 2021 will be a full season. And at the end of that season, a player will have an average exit velocity of 101. Let's just or say 100 to make the math easier in case it needs to be easier. What does that tell us about the stat Next season, in, in season 2022, when we're drafting our season-long leagues, how much more confidence, if any, should we have in the fact that we have 160 games worth of data for that stat to have stabilized? Right. So bigger sample sizes are, are always better. We always want as big of a sample size as possible because we can be more confident in the bigger sample size. When we talk about that stabilization point, let's say you know it's 30 games, um, that's the point where um, the percentages that we're using would be 50-50. But as you get a bigger sample size, it starts to shift. You know, you get a, an extra few games. Now it's 51-49 in favor of the player versus league average. You get more. Now it's 52-48. Um, you know, you get to the end of the season, maybe it's, you know, 70-30 or 80-20 or something like that. Um, so you're never going to be able to take any statistic ever, um, with the exception of maybe like pitch velocity, um, at face value. Because there's always going to be a chance that the player just got lucky. And I know people don't like to hear that, but that is the way baseball and the world and math works. Like there is randomness in everything. Even things that we don't think there's randomness in, there, there's randomness in them. And so you always have to account for that. And that's what these stabilization points tell us. They look historically at what players have done and they tell us what percentage of what players have done historically tends to be 
randomness um, at at any any particular sample size. So it's really really cool. Um, but obviously, the bigger sample size we get, the better, and and the less of a chance there is that randomness is what impacted what the player did. And taking it the other way, Derek, you have a thirty-one game stability where you have a fifty percent understanding or a fifty percent mix that you mentioned. But you're playing a lot of DFS, which is using it not in the next thirty-one games or the next hundred games or the next season. You're talking about the next game tonight. And I'm wondering, how do you apply the knowledge that you know about this theoretically stable metric insofar as applying it to a one-game sample? It's actually um, pretty much the same as, as it would be projecting, um, you know, just the rest of the season um, or, or the next week or the next month. Um, at least uh, the foundation of it is the same. The same projection... Um, that the same base projection that I use for DFS is the same base projection that I use for uh, my rest of season season long projections that you'll see at Fangraphs. The only difference is the application of contextual factors. Um, what what you really want to know, at least to begin with, is how good is this player right now in a neutral context? And when I say neutral context, I mean assuming everything is is average. This guy is going to be in an average park, average weather, average opposing pitcher, average defense, average umpire, average everything. Just how good is this guy just on his own, his own talent level, um, independent of all the different external factors that can impact uh, play in a baseball game. And so once you have that, then you just apply the contextual factors for the period that you care about. If it's uh, over the rest of the 2020 season, you want to think about what his home park is, what his mix of road parks are, you know, maybe his strength of schedule in terms of uh, his mix of pitchers that he's going to face, you know, on, you know, uh, on his team's particular schedule over the rest of the season. And that's what the the projections at Fangraphs um, will tell you. Um, But on a daily level, you just look at what the situation is that day. What park is he in today? Who's the opposing pitcher today? What's the bullpen today? Who's the umpire today? The weather, the whole thing. Um, but you're starting from the same place of, of trying to figure out the player's um, underlying talent level at that moment. You said in the presentation that exit velocity of batted balls indicates raw power, but isn't raw power all by itself. What did you mean by that? It's really interesting. Yeah. So like, um, when, like when we talk about baseball players, we, we want to try to whittle things down to, to skills. You know, this is the guy's contact skill. This is his power skill. This is his speed skill and sprint speed, uh, gives us a really good idea of a player's speed skill because it's literally measuring his speed. It's measuring how fast he's going. Like you can't do better than that when you're just trying to figure out how fast a guy is because you're literally measuring how fast a guy is. Um, in terms of launch angle and exit velocity, you're not literally measuring his power. You're measuring um, kind of an offshoot, you know, a, a, a deviation of his power. Um, power is, is an innate thing. You'd have to measure like the guy's uh, muscle mass and, and how you know, quickly he can move his muscles or like I don't even know how you would actually measure power. You're measuring um, the guy taking that power and channeling it into a swing, which uh, which can you know 
change just from swing to swing. Not every single swing is, is the same for a guy, you know, swings always going to be a little bit different. Um, and you're measuring what happens once the bat meets the ball. That's not his innate power. That's, uh, you know, a measurement of his power. It's an estimation of his power, if, if that makes sense. And so that, that is why you see the stabilization rate for launch angle and exit velocity is, uh, you know, it, it takes longer to stabilize than sprint speed does because it's not measuring his actual power the way it seems like some people kind of treat it as. Could you infer power, uh, actual power skill from bat speed? I think that would get us a little bit closer. Yep. Um, because again, launch angle is going to be, and, and exit velocity are going to depend on, um, again, not just how powerful the guy is, but how efficient he is at swinging the bat and making contact in the right spot with the ball and making contact, um, you know, whether he's uh, letting the ball travel deep into the zone and kind of hitting it like in the right way. Um, but yeah, bat speed will definitely get us a little bit closer to power because it's less dependent on um, where the ball is making contact with the bat, the swing path, that type of thing. So uh, that would definitely be, um, I think, uh, an improved metric and probably one that stabilizes a little quicker. And I understand that uh, Major League Baseball teams do have access to some bat speed data. They just don't share it with everybody. But I wonder if you could back it out uh, mathematically by taking uh, exit velocities and launch angles and just trying to account for you know, I'm going back to my grade 12 physics, but there are vector considerations, you know, at ball at point of contact. If you infer from the bat plane, what the launch angle was, what the angle was when the ball hit the bat, if there is an angle when two round things collide, those kinds of things, would it be possible, do you think, to back out the bat speed from the data that are available? It's possible we could get an estimate, but I'm not sure if the estimate would be that much more useful than just using the launch angle and the exit velocity, since it would be based on the same thing. It would probably tell us something pretty similar. Um, I, I think we'd want to really actually measure it, um, which like you said, I think is happening. We just don't have that data publicly. You made a point in your presentation about how often players make big jumps in particular metrics from year X to year X plus one, then give back some of the gains, but usually not all. Uh, how predictive is this observation when you consider the full universe of hitters? Yeah, I mean, it, it really speaks to a lot of what we've uh, what we've already been saying. You know, when I gave the exit velocity example of okay, if the guy has a hundred mile per hour exit velocity um, over over thirty games, like he's not a hundred mile per hour guy, he's going to drop back to you know ninety five or whatever. Um, and it's the same thing when we're talking about year to year changes. You know, guys, because like we said, everything is we're dealing with finite sample sizes with everything we can never trust anything at face value um you always have to assume some regression you have to assume that if this guy all of a sudden did something way better or even way worse than what he did the previous year um you know our best estimate of what he's going to go going what he's going to do going forward is going to be some combination of both of those years and so you have to expect him to fall back a little bit you also said in the presentation that until we get better metrics, the tendency is to just all players back into a middle ground. And that's kind of what you said, but you added the StatCast metrics do allow us to do better. What did you mean? So, you know, back in the day uh, when, when traditional stats were, you know, home runs, RBIs, runs, like that type of thing, um, 
we have stability numbers on, on how quickly home runs stabilize. And so if we were going to um, try to project future home runs, we would take some portion of what the player actually did in terms of home runs and what league average home runs were. Um, but if we have access to um, better, better and better data like StatCast stuff, um, we don't necessarily need to take um, like, like we know the player is going to regress. Um, just, we know he's going to based on sample size and math. We have to assume some regression, but it's, uh, it's the number that we expect him to regress to, um, you know, a player like, uh, like Joey Gallo, if we're looking at Joey Gallo's home run rate, uh, and we're going to regress it, we're going to take what he actually did. And we're going to, we're going to regress it, you know, to make him a little bit worse going forward because that's what we expect or whatever. Um, is, is it fair to assume that he's going to regress to a league average player? I would say no, because there's a lot of things that we know, know about Joey Gallo that makes him not a league average player. Um, some, some things are things that we have known for a while, like, like height and weight. Um, you know, just, just by the nature of, of him being a big dude, we can assume that he's uh, going to have better power than a league average hitter. And so we would regress him to a better number than league average. But when you can also throw the stat cast numbers in there, well, okay, we also know that his exit velocity is this and his launch angle is this, you know, he's really swinging with a big uppercut and he's getting the ball in the air and he's hitting the ball hard. Um, we can, again, fine tune what that number that we're regressing to is. So we're not regressing him to league average. And ultimately we're regressing him to be a bit, we're expecting him and projecting him to be a better player um, than if we were regressing him, you know, to league average, because we'd be, be regressing him uh, too far. Basically, we'd be regressing him to to something that he he isn't. Gallo's an interesting case. I was looking at him earlier, and I've just called up his numbers over the last uh, since 2015, and of course the 2020 year you have to take with a grain of salt. But it's 32 percent home run per fly, 25, 30, 28, 37, and this year 30. If we leave out the 17 percent from last year. He's getting older. That that has to factor into how we consider what he might do in 2022. But the average in there looks like around 32% or so. Would that be a reasonable baseline to expect for 2022 if you were just like doing it on the back of an envelope? Yeah, if you're doing it on the back of an envelope, um, you know, if you take a guy's, uh, you know, sample size over the last few years, like you'll get, you'll get close enough. Um, You'll never have to do back of the envelope math, though, because there's a lot of good projection systems out there, not just mine, but but other people's projections, too. And so um, you'll definitely want to do that rather than try to do your own your own projections or your own back of the envelope math. But, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, most players are going to perform similarly to how they performed in the past. There's going to be exceptions. There's going to be other things we want to consider. But as a general rule, like that tends to hold, you know, tends to hold true. Seems like a bit of a noisy stat, too, in that parks probably play a role in you know whether a thing becomes a home run and you mentioned weather yeah. which the bat x looks at and the bat looks at so there are there are these extraneous factors that are not part of joey gallo's makeup they're just part of the context that he found himself in as you mentioned and finally derek after pointing out in the presentation how not to use statcast stats you also discussed how uh, fantasy players and baseball analysts should use statcast stats what was your advice on that score yeah, really, it's it's just uh, it's just making sure that you're not 
um, putting too much weight into them, understanding that that they are um, noisy in and of themselves, and they're not pure skill metrics. And so just kind of having a better understanding of what they are makes it so that you're going to use them um, you know, more, more efficiently. Well, Derek, I could talk about this stuff with you for hours, and you're probably afraid I'm going to. So let's take a break for our National League and American League news, and we'll get you back in part two, and you can talk about your tools, the Bat and the Bat X. Sounds good to me. Derek Carty is the developer of the Bat and the Bat X projection systems at Roto Grinders, EV Analytics, Fangraphs, and The Athletic. And he'll be back a little later on in the show. Coming up, we have our Market Watch Player News reports. Nick has the National League News. Ray has the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time tomorrow, analyst Matt Dodge looks at all five teams in the American League Central Division, including the likelihood of Bobby Witt Jr. finally getting to Kansas City this year, the second base situation in Chicago, and the very young Detroit rotation. In The Speculator, columnist Ryan Bloomfield looks at the trade deadline possibilities, not of who gets traded where, but who gets the playing time after a player is traded out. In the GM's office, co-general manager Brent Hershey looks at how HQ staffers are doing in their experts' leagues at the break. And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in Brad Coleman's Market Pulse column. There's injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's Big Hurt column. And, of course, we have that groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are all kinds of tools, like the player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders based on skills, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. You get expert content, plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's our National League News and our old friend, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Let's start in Cincinnati. Some bad news for Reds fans and for fantasy managers who have outfielder Nick Castellanos. He's got a wrist problem. They were hopeful that it was just something that was going to get better with uh, anti-inflammatories and maybe a little bit of rest, but he can't swing a bat for the time being at all. He had a CT scan that revealed a micro fracture in his right wrist earlier this week. Tom Kephart on the story for playing time today. This is bad news, for, of course, for Castellanos' managers, but um, what do we do? Well, recent days at Keno was likely to see the bulk of the right field playing time while Castellanos is sidelined. Uh, he provides a, a, a patient right-handed power bat, though very contact challenge. Hyder Naquin has seen most of his playing time in center field, but also see increased right field playing time uh, with light-hitting the left-handed bat of uh, Sojo Akiyama in center field. Uh, Aquino's playing time is likely to surge most as he's potentially could provide the power 
that uh, Cincinnati will miss without Castellanos. Yes, and that power, unfortunately, comes at a cost. Uh, he's had 19 home runs, I think, in just 200 at-bats or so in 2019, but he struck out 29% of the time that year, and since then it's been downhill all the way. 38% strikeouts last year, 42% this year, uh, uh, admittedly in limited playing time, so it's hard to get excited from a fantasy point of view, Nick, about uh, Aristides Aquino unless you really need power and you've got a pretty good foundation in your batting average. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, when a guy strikes out that much, that, that's a lot of empty at-bats. You know, it's it's one of those things that, uh, as we've said before, a strikeout gives you nothing, absolutely nothing. No chance to drive in a run, no chance to advance base runners, nothing. No chance to score, yeah. No chance to score, yeah. The more strikeouts the guy has, the less it's going to help you on your fantasy team. And I guess Nick Senzel's been on the DL since forever. He had surgery to deal with some inflammation in his left knee they transferred him in a backdated move to the 60 day but he's still projected to be sidelined until early august is nick senzel any kind of solution do you think well I, uh, the problem with nick senzel is that nick senzel is a is a decent hitter and he can get hot for streaks but he's always hurt uh, all the time and so you can't count on nick senzel for more than a week or two at a time before something else comes up and he's back on the dl again Meanwhile, another guy that you really probably don't want to take advantage of the opportunity as far as fantasy goes is Shogo Akiyama. You mentioned him. He's a center fielder and he's a plus fielder, but boy, uh, not much stick. No, not much stick at all. And that uh, they had hoped when, they, when he came over, he would be better than that. But certainly it's not a uh, transfer to stick to the majors at all. Uh, so really a, a good field, no hit kind of guy, uh, not likely to help you much in fantasy. He puts the bat on the ball, but he doesn't do much with it. He's hitting 196 so far this year. His expected batting average is around 240, so he's had a little bit of bad luck, but not enough to make you say, you know what, this is a guy I think I'm going to target, unless you know, if you're in a very, very uh, deep National League-only type situation, maybe the playing time alone might be worth something. He's got a couple of bags. Moving on, Washington Nationals have announced that third baseman Starlin Castro is not expected to return to the team this year. Uh, he was placed on Major League Baseball's administrative leave list last week because the league is looking into allegations of domestic abuse. Phil Hertz covered the story for playing time today. What's the latest out of Washington? Yeah, we'll take Mike Rizzo at his word and see Rock Castro for the rest of 2021. He's a free agent after this season, so he might also have some difficulty getting a contract to play every day in 2022. Uh, with Castro out, Washington has been using Jordy Mercer and Escobar in third. Escobar has been playing semi-regularly since being acquired from Kansas City earlier this month. He's batting 316, but some of this is attributable to a 35% hit rate. Uh, expected batting average 278, has only one homer, no steals, and 57 at-bats. Uh, Mercer's been hitting well lately, 7 for 21 with a homer, but overall a 250 expected batting average, 73 expected power index. Uh, Washington could also turn to Carter Keboom, who disappointed in previous Major League auditions, only hitting 248 in AAA Rochester, but a 380 on base percentage and a 788 OPS. And if you're playing in a league with OBP, of course, a 380 OBP is going to be very, very helpful. And I think all leagues should be OBP, but that's just me. Meanwhile, this is not Starlin Castro's first domestic violence issue. I remember back, oh God, 10 years ago or so, he was accused of something and charges weren't filed. My question to you, Nick, is you play in uh, dynasty formats. How do you handle a situation like this? 
you mentioned that not only is he not going to play for the rest of this year, but his chances of landing a contract with this dark cloud over him could potentially mean he doesn't play next year either or for the foreseeable future. Is How does that affect his value as far as you're concerned in dynasty or keeper formats? In a dynasty or keeper format, I, I just can't hang on to a guy like that. I need the roster spots. There are lots of guys out there who can play baseball. And so uh, I really don't have have uh, a space on a, on a roster uh, for a, a, a possibility that this guy might come back and play uh, in two years from now. So uh, I just kind of ignore those things and, and move on. In New York, more bad news. Uh, the Mets put right-hander Jacob deGrom, the best pitcher in baseball, goes to the 10-day injured list on Sunday because of, uh-oh, forearm tightness. Boy, you sure hate to hear that, don't you? Uh, Phil Hurts again on the story for playing time today. What happens in New York with deGrom out indefinitely other than lots of crying and gnashing of teeth? Well, and at this point, uh, you know, at this point it's really hard to tell. I mean, what's going on with deGrom? He's, he's, he's being very careful, obviously. Uh, there's no nothing structural going on they've done the done the various medical things and can't find anything structural so reportedly will not throw again until the soreness subsides but the latest uh latest yesterday he was playing catch uh sometimes sometimes he could be back very very quickly so uh retroactive uh, dl on uh, price on the dl on the 18th so it could be back uh, sometime this next week so stay tuned for uh reports about when he may pitch again I saw a story online that said DeGrom said this injury is not related to the problems that he had earlier in the season, which on one hand sounds like it could be good news because it's not getting worse, but on the other hand, it could be bad news because, uh-oh, now a new injury. Right. Uh, that's what it, yeah. You know, it's one of those things that you just don't really know. Uh, you've got to hope a guy like DeGrom comes back as soon as possible because if you've got him on your fantasy roster, he's a huge help. Uh, but uh, obviously no help at all if he's on the, on the IL. So hopefully this will be a, a short-term kind of thing, and he'll be out there pitching uh, very soon, If uh, but probably hopefully by the end of the month, if not early in August. And again, this kind of thing has fantasy ramifications in dynasty and keeper formats. We know that forearm strains, forearm tightness, all of these uh, conditions are sometimes euphemisms for elbow trouble or perhaps indicators of elbow trouble. If you were sitting with Jacob deGrom on a keeper roster, how much more likely would you be to consider trading him off your roster? And conversely, if he was on somebody else's roster and you got an email saying, you know what, I've had enough of this guy, how would you respond to the opportunity to roster Jacob deGrom, who's apparently having some kind of difficulty with his arm? Yeah, you know, I... I, uh... Pitchers who are, who are injured worry me a lot. On the other hand, you can't replace Jacob DeGrom. There is no other pitcher like him in the major leagues. Uh, the kind of season he's having is phenomenal. So, uh, you know, I guess it would just depend on where you are in the standings and what you need at this point. But uh, the kind of ERA and whip he's been putting up can prop up an entire staff for a long period of time. And so uh, I would certainly, if somebody, uh, given what's been going on so far with DeGrom this season, I would be willing to give up a mid-level player for him. Uh, certainly not one of my stars, but if somebody wanted to give me Jacob DeGrom for a mid-level kind of player, I would be willing to take that chance. In San Francisco, the Giants put shortstop Brandon Crawford on the 10-day IL. He's got an oblique strain. The team recalled uh, infielder slash outfielder Jason Vosler from AAA. Jock Thompson covered the Giants for playing time today. What's the latest news from the City by the Bay? Yeah, Crawford attempted to play through this, but an MRI revealed a mild strain that will require two weeks of downtime, give or take. 
Uh, now the starter at second base in three of the past four games, rookie Tyro Estrada has posted very good plate skills, 11% walk rate, 82% contact rate, and a 364 batting average, but a 42% hit rate to go along with that, along with 10 RBIs through 35 unit bats that will keep him in the lineup for now in a Crawford's absence. But it seems like a very fluid situation as we approach the trade deadline. Uh, Bossier is 12 for 57, riding San Francisco's uh, Sacramento shuttle this season. He'll continue to get the bats off the bench and is a backup at corner infield outfield spot. Speaking of shortstops on the West Coast, uh, the Dodgers put shortstop Gavin Lux on the IL with a left hamstring injury earlier this week. Uh, Jock Thompson covered the story for playing time today, and he said manager Dave Roberts now says Lux's return could take some time in a quotation, and Lux has been playing at shortstop, of course, while the Dodgers wait for the return of their regular shortstop, Corey Seager, who has a broken hand. So now they're down two shortstops. What are the Dodgers going to do, and is there a fantasy opportunity here? Well, for now, at this point, the utility Chris Taylor has moved into the shortstop vacancy created by Lux. Uh, Max Muncy playing second base again. Uh, bench players Albert Pujols, Zach McKinstry, and Max Matt Beatty seem likely to pick up some more short-term at-bats as the Dodgers' injuries keep on coming. Uh, Sager continues to work out. A participated simulated game could be activated any time. If that happens, we'll shift some uh, L.A. playing time around all over again. So kind of keep uh, – this is a situation to kind of uh, – Keep track of and see what's going on. Uh, McKinstry and Beatty have been very good fill-ins and good fantasy players. So uh, keep an eye on this and see what happens because uh, there's a lot of playing time to be had in this situation at a good lineup. And of course, Chris Taylor, you mentioned him as the likely fill-in. Boy, he's having a terrific year. I remember a little while ago doing a piece for Baseball HQ Radio looking at guys who are way, way above their value. And Chris Taylor was the most valuable fantasy player on the Dodgers roster, which really is surprising considering that roster. $29 5x5 this year. Now, early in May, after he got off to a terrific start, we had a facts and flukes analysis by Brant Chesser, and he said a lot of the performance of Taylor, the, the production level of Taylor, is not really totally supported by his skills. Hard contact index, expected power index, these kind of things were actually down a little bit. And since he wrote that, they're down quite a bit. His uh, BPV at the time was uh, somewhere in the 60s, which is quite good. He's now down to, what, around 45 or something like that. There's like a 15-point drop in base performance value, which is a broad skills measure. I don't know whether I'd be super excited about Chris Taylor in this situation, and I'd be very suspicious if somebody in my league said, now that Chris Taylor's playing shortstop full-time, what will you give me for him? Because I think that there's too many indicators that what this was was a fairly extended hot streak. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right about that. I mean, I, I picked Chris Taylor up in the league at the end of a draft for almost nothing and certainly been very, very valuable. But uh, it, it's been a season-long hot streak is what it's been. And so uh, I would be, I would worry a lot if someone tried to trade me Chris Taylor at this point. Certainly, there's going to be some tailing off uh, as we take a look at what the skills tell us. So, uh, I, you know, I'm going to keep him in my lineup, of course, we keep hitting, but uh, I would worry about, re- about requiring him at this point in the season. The one good thing about Chris Taylor this year, his walks have really increased. They've increased three points each in the last couple of years. So if you like walks and if you're an on-base league, that could be a, a bit of a bonus. But we have a lot of proof now that uh, 
walk rate is not necessarily tied to batting average success. It is tied somewhat to uh, what you might expect in the power department because it indicates selectivity at the plate and so forth. So uh, if you're looking at Chris Taylor, just be aware that uh, there's some question about whether the skills support the outcomes. Uh, Staying in uh, Los Angeles, the Dodgers outfielder Mookie Betts left a game last weekend with what the team called right hip irritation. Uh, Dave Roberts said he doesn't expect that Betts will go on the IL, but a guy who relies on speed for a lot of his fantasy value Having a sore hip is not the greatest. What's the latest news? Yeah, you know, Betts have been white hot in July. 377 batting average, four home runs, and 53 July at bats after a kind of a so-so first half. And, and what we're hearing is that this is a hip pointer. Well, a hip pointer can be a uh, description for lots of things uh, that really says we're not sure what the problem is at this point. Uh, been out of the lineup since Sunday. Uh, they're, they're, we're saying they don't expect an IL stint, but He's now been on the IL for, I mean, if they backdated something, he's been able to play for almost a week. Uh, certainly at this point, uh, you've got, if you're in a weekly lineup, you've got to think, uh, do I put him in my lineup next week or not? That's a difficult situation. Uh, he still could come back any night and suddenly show up. Uh, tough, tough choices to be made for fantasy managers at this point. If Betts is playing, you want him in your lineup. Uh, if he's on the IL, that's a blank spot if he's not playing so uh right now hopefully there'll be something come out uh soon we, uh, yesterday i saw a, a, a mention that he may have to go on the il if he goes on the il of course that can be up to backdated to the 17th so that would put him just out a few days maybe a, a tough choices to make with mookie Betts. Yeah, there are. I was looking at his game log, and he, he the last time he played was on Monday. He got one at bat and then left the game, and so this is now what you said coming up to uh, five six days of of not playing I think uh, as a Mookie Betts fantasy manager on one of my teams I am really concerned about this at this point because it's a first round guy obviously and it's a league that I play in that I can't trade him or really do anything except try to replace him and even in a 15 team mix you're not going to replace a Mookie Betts no very definitely it's not a guy that's replaceable there's nobody out there on your uh, on your your, your waiver wire that's going to replace Mookie Betts. So you've just got to decide what do you do in a weekly league? Uh, in a daily league, not so bad, perhaps. You could get him back in there instantly. But in a weekly league, uh, what do you do for the next week? Uh, I guess I'm going to leave him in my lineup until the Dodgers make the move and finally say he's going on the IL. And even then, he could be back in a couple of days. And of course, the other concern, Nick, is that he does come back or he doesn't go on the IL and resumes playing. But the last time he stole a base was back in uh, June 25th, according to his game logs, which means he's coming up to a month without a stolen base. And of course, that could be partly because of the hip problem. And I don't know if he slides head first or feet first, but if it's feet first, the last thing you want to do is be banging down on that hard dirt with, uh, with a sore hip. So I uh, don't know about the stolen bases, even if he does play. Yeah, I would I would worry about that too. I you know I would not count on getting many stolen bases from Mookie Betts at this point. Uh, once he's back in the lineup, the Dodgers may not give him the, the green light simply because they don't want him getting injured, uh, sliding on the on the on the base path. So uh, that may be something we don't see from Mookie Betts for a couple of weeks until they're they're more sure about what's going on with his hip. 
seven so far this year, and that might be all you get. Uh, finally, uh, the Dodgers called up right-hander Josiah Gray from AAA on Tuesday, put a guy named uh, Scott Alexander, left-hander, on the IL with some left shoulder problems. Of course, the Dodgers have been having a lot of trouble with their rotation between injuries and Trevor Bauer's suspension because he also is looking at some sexual uh, assault type of allegations. What are the Dodgers going to do with this Josiah Gray? Yeah, shoulder infringement delayed Gray's 2021 start, but he was finally beginning to round into shape at AAA Oklahoma City. 15's inning pitch, five runs, uh, 22-2 strikeout walk ratio, and now suddenly the Dodgers need starting pitchers and arms that might eat innings, and here he is. Uh, 23-year-old Gray has plenty of upside, but just 55 innings pitch, high minor experience. So uh, kind of temper your expectations. He had a rocky major league debut on Tuesday against San Francisco giving up four runs, three home runs, also posting seven uh, strikeouts to only one walk. Uh, so barring, uh, barring rotation acquisition to trade deadline, Gray seems likely to stick around for a while. Uh, this is a guy that's got some, some real opportunity as a, as a, a 6'1", 190-pound right-hander, three-pitch mix starting with a plus-plus, plus-mid-90s fastball with sidearm run. Slider's a good pitch, too, plus action. Uh, not as consistent as it needed to be in order to function as a weapon. But early reports show that he's making improvements. So a changeup is behind the other two pitches, and it'll be key to his remaining a starter. But this is a guy that we, uh, Baseball HQ, rated at give a 9E rating uh, as a potential number three starter, uh, number 49 on our HQ 100, number one LSU LA prospect. Uh, you know, so this is a guy you would want in your on your team, and certainly a lot of potential, and could round into state very quickly. But without a lot of high minors experience, he could also bomb very quickly. That's just the, the trick, isn't it? Uh, that 9D rating in the Baseball HQ call-ups report means uh, his ceiling is as an elite starter, but the D part of it means uh, they think that he only has about a 30% chance of achieving that ceiling. So if you scale it back to kind of a 50% chance, then you're probably looking at a guy who is has the potential uh, ceiling of being a good solid regular, but not an outstanding sort of Cy Young caliber pitcher. 57 batters faced in AAA this year, struck out 22 of them, a 39% strikeout rate, and only two of them drew walks, 4%, so a 35% strikeout minus walk in AAA. The problem is very few innings, as you said, in AAA, and it's really hard to kind of hang a, a big fab bid or something like that on a 16-inning performance, especially considering the less-than-sterling outing that he had against San Francisco in his in his debut. Right, yeah, it's very difficult at this point to uh, to bet on this guy, but uh, he certainly has some some uh, excellent potential. So uh, someone to keep an eye on at this point. Uh, just a, another idea to throw out for people that are looking for for players: look at the IL and look at when these guys are coming off. Lots of times, guys who go on the IL, especially on the sixty-day IL, when leagues have been dropped, and a lot of them may be coming back in August. So take a look and see uh, what you can do. Who's who's out there? who's pitching in rehab, who's ready to come back, because I'm finding on my league a lot of guys who've been dropped who may suddenly be back in August. Got any names? Uh, Oscar Inoa, live batting practice, still uh, scheduled to pitch in the game next Tuesday in Florida. Uh, been on the 60-day IL and was certainly tearing it up before he went on. Take a look at that guy. He's on the IL in one of my leagues and probably won't be there for long. Indeed not. Great tip. Thanks, Nick. We'll talk to you again next week. All right. Thank you, Patrick.
Harold Nichols is a Baseball HQ pitching analyst and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com, Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD. Good to catch up as always. Yeah, and we're back to having kind of a regular parade of news, and as usual, most of it is bad, especially for owners of Alex Kirilov. He had a wrist ligament problem, and I think he was trying to play through it for the longest time, and finally they said, no, nah, this isn't going to work, and he's going to be out for at least eight weeks, but I've heard that it's pretty much an end of the season for Alex Kirilov. Yeah, we start getting to the point here in late July for a team that's not going to the playoffs, and especially a young prospect, they're not going to want to run, rush back the... Uh, the math on end of the season as opposed to coming back and playing for a week or 10 days when, you know, as we run into in September every year, he won't have anywhere to go on a rehab assignment, all of those sorts of not problems. Yeah, I would imagine we will next see Kirilov in uh, spring training next uh, in early 2022. And of course, Byron Buxton still on the shelf. This seems to leave the Minnesota outfield in a bit of difficulty as Rick Green reported in playing time today. Yeah, this was an interesting one for me to look at, uh, just because in our forums, which are always full of uh, crack analysts, uh, somebody asked the question of me last week, hey, the playing time projection you have for Trevor Larnack can't be right. We were at like, I don't know, 30 or 40%. He's like, Larnack's played pretty well. He's part of the Twins' future. They're out of the race. He's going to play a lot more than that, right? And I looked at it, and I said, well, yeah, except the problem is I don't know how. Right, because Buxton's coming back, and they still have Kepler. They still have Sano. Kirilov was in left field, you know, theoretically ahead of Larnack. I'm like, I'm sure one of those things is going to change. But if I were going to project Larnack for 75% playing time for the rest of the year, even though that's what I think he's going to get, I got to take it from somebody, and I don't know where the heck to take it from. Anyway, long way around of saying now I know where to take it from. Uh, Larnack is, you know, probably one of the primary beneficiaries here, along with the cast of thousands that we've talked about every time the Twins have made a roster move this year from Luis Arias to Williams Astadio, uh, Jake Cave is coming back off the DL, uh, Gilberto Celestino has done some uh, work in center field in particular while, while Buxton has been out. So I, I guess the other point here is that this is just the first domino. You know, there could still be some trade deadline or other roster machinations for the Twins that free up playing time for or free up more playing time for this group. But right now, I think Larnack is uh, picking up a, a decent chunk of what Kirilov leaves on the table. I was listening to a Twins game the other night on the radio, and they were talking about Nick Gordon out in center field. Of course, he was drafted as a shortstop. And in center field, he's acquitted himself, according to these announcers who see them play every day, better than a lot of people expected. And so I looked him up. I thought, gosh, maybe he's got a chance to play. And so far, he's got 72 at-bats with a home run. He's batting 250, which isn't bad. 308 on base percentage is not great. Pretty decent speed. He's got five bags already with one caught stealing, so that's good. And here's what caught my eye. Ray, he's got a 143 hard contact index. That's almost 50% better than league average. That's pretty eye-popping. Yeah, I'm just scanning across that line now, and certainly from a productive, from a fantasy production, the five stolen bases jump out at you, but you're right. In terms of that that 143 hard contact, and it only comes, you know, we know that's a mixed metric. It's a combination of hard contact rate and overall contact, putting the ball in play, and his contact rate itself is not remarkable at 72%, which means whenever he puts the bat on the ball, he must be hitting it very hard because that 143 hard contact is an elite number that's getting driven by the hard hit ball side of that that equation, not the contact side. 
Certainly makes me want to go to Baseball Savant and look up his barrel metrics and uh, exit velocity metrics because there could be a little diamond in the rough going on here. I, m- I imagine that Nick Gordon is probably not on a lot of rosters uh, except in American League only formats where anybody with a pulse is going to be picked up pretty quickly. But in 15 team mixed, anyways, maybe this guy's worth a look, especially if you need an injury replacement for, for example, Alex Kirilov. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. And then, you know, just scanning across the rest of his metrics uh you know this might be a case where he's one more adjustment away because for all of that hard contact i also see a 52 percent ground ball rate which you know combining the metrics we were just talking about suggests that a decent chunk of those ground balls are being hit hard and as we talk about frequently the, the ground balls are not the ones you want hit hard the slower you hit them the better chance you have of beating them out so that might explain why he's hitting the ball hard but still has uh a per, you know a pretty pedestrian 250 batting average I was thinking exactly the same thing. It would be good if he, you could separate out the hard ones for the fly balls and keep the medium ones for the ground balls because he's got excellent speed and he could beat out a few leg hits and maybe bump that average up. And maybe he'll figure that out. You know, these guys, uh, young players, have to figure out what their skills mix is and then how to apply it effectively to get to the major leagues and then to stay in the major leagues. Uh, Moving on, uh, Detroit Tigers announced that Spencer Turnbull is done for the season and they've recalled right-hander Matt Manning. At one time, Matt Manning was a really big deal in the prospect circles and everybody was very excited that Matt Manning's coming, Matt Manning's coming, and then Matt Manning got here and it wasn't all that. That's exactly right. You know, first of all, you know, really bad news for Turnbull. He had been in the news uh, you know, a bit earlier this season, threw a no hitter and threw nine starts, which was really, really good with a 288 ERA, a sub one whip, and uh, you know, pretty good skills behind it. And now, obviously, you know, it's tough when you have TJ surgery at this time of year because we probably will not see him until spring of 2023. The good news is when he gets back on the mound, then he will likely he'll be at the 18 months past surgery, and maybe 2023 could be a full season for him, but. He is basically a cross-off for 2022. As you say, Manning is sort of a checkered situation here in that he has been, you know, he was a, a, touted, I think, at least equally to Casey Mize, right? And then Scooble was sort of the, you know, third leg of the tripod here as they were rebuilding their rotation. And Mize and Scooble are both acquitting themselves quite well as their rookie seasons go on here. Manning less so, although... You know, just scanning his game log and squinting, looking for signs. I think one of the things that was most surprising about Manning in his first five starts was that he wasn't generating swinging strikes or strikeouts at all. And he got sent down for the all-star break, which looked like anything from service time manipulation and maybe just letting him get his work in in the minors, put it charitably, what have you. But I think he only made one start down there, maybe two. But he came back uh, this week and hung up 11 swinging strikes and four strikeouts in six innings against the Rangers. So, yeah, maybe he went back to see his AAA pitching coach and they tweaked something. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's a little bit uh, of encouragement here for the rest of the season. But, you know, it, it, in general, I, I think I want to be praising the Tigers here because it seems like they're doing a really good job of integrating that young talent. You know, we talked about the pitchers and they've installed Akil Badu at the top of the order. And, you know, they're playing really competitively. They, I, I, they've won six or seven straight, or you know, coming into this week, and you know they're they're creeping toward five hundred, which is I think is a lot more than we expected from this team. So I think from a player development point of view, uh, you know, while Manning's been disappointing to date, I'm certainly not going to give up on him because I need to get it 
sort of recalibrate in my head that evidence is mounting that the Tigers know what they're doing with these young kids. And they appear to know what they're doing with an old kid. Uh, Willie Peralta has found a place at the bottom of that rotation and uh, 164 ERA, his whip also under one around 094. Uh, Willie Peralta historically has not been a 164, 094 type of pitcher, but I was uh, listening to another podcast, I think it was Rates and Barrels with Eno Saris and Derek Van Riper, and they were talking about the possibility that there are organizations out there that have not only figured out how to develop pitchers from the ground up, from draft up, but to reclaim older pitchers and turn them into useful pitchers by pitch mix adjustments, mechanics adjustments, those kind of things. Is there any chance, Ray, in your mind, that Willie Peralta at age 32 has blossomed into a a much better pitcher than he has been historically? Well, I'll tell you my personal anecdote on this is that I, I, I've lost a lot of money in the last month stacking lineups against Willie Peralta and DFS. So I finally learned my lesson and have stopped doing it, conceding that you know something is different here. Um, you know, 32, as you say, is sort of awfully old on the spectrum of old dog new tricks for just you know taking somebody who has not had much success and you know rebooting them or shifting their pitch mix. But teams are getting better and better at this. We talked about. I think a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Alex Cobb, who's sort of in the same boat. It's, it's not unheard of. And certainly, you know, whatever new peak he reaches or late career peak he reaches is probably not going to be a long one. But, you know, I, I think in this age of more and more metrics and, you know, even Eno knows what a lot of teams are doing. And Eno knows where a lot of the pockets of good, ta- of good um, talent and coaching and player development are. And if even he's saying we have to be open to the possibility that there are things going on that we don't know about. You know, he, there's even more that I don't know about that Eno doesn't know about. So I certainly am going to, you know, adopt the same mindset and try to sort of keep an open mind to uh, the, these out of nowhere changes. Having said all that, we'd rather that a guy like Willie Peralta, who shows these kinds of extraordinary outcomes, had some kind of backing from the skills. But when I look at them, you know, for the last three or four years, he's had strikeout to walk ratios, we call them command ratios, under two. It's under two again this year. He's striking out less than six guys per nine innings, five and a half. He's walking three. Uh, he seems to have tamed the home run bug a little bit, but that could be construed as luck rather than as skill. Uh, I think this is a, a dangerous sort of profile to buy into, much as I'd like to buy into it. For sure, and you know, a caveats apply, or you know, we we need to talk about the 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 depth of the endorsement. If there is any endorsement, right? Um, Peralta's got a we've got a one sixty four ERA and a sub one WHIP. Nobody's buying that. Uh, you know, the very basic metrics will tell us you know the, the true story: nineteen percent hit rate, eighty nine percent strand rate, four twenty expected ERA to tell you you know, where we expect his skills to be. However, you know, for a guy who's got a career ERA up around five, that the, you know, th- there are some things that are different here, notably his ground ball percentage is through the ceiling. You know, he's been a career 49 to 50% ground ball guy, and right now that's up at 57. So it might be the Tigers have just basically told him to throw whichever pitch it is that gets the ground balls all the time. And that can make him more effective. It's not going to make him 164 ERA effective. So we absolutely should be very clear about that up front, but they may be able to get, you know, more blood from this particular turnip than, uh, than, than others have in the past. 
You never know what'll turn up. Uh, Such a write up for that, didn't I? <laughs> I appreciate that very much as well. <laughs> Moving on to your neck of the woods up in Boston, uh, another Alex Kirilov type of story in that uh, everybody's been waiting all year for Jaron Duran to get his call up, which he finally got this week. Uh, he's not hurt, though. He's playing. He actually has played a little bit. And in the meantime, Christian Arroyo got hurt. So it seems like there may be a lot of ripple effects here going on in Boston with Jaron Duran in Arroyo for the time being out. Yeah, that's right. And sort of the first ripple from Duran was going to be what happened at second base because Kiki Hernandez had been sort of handling center field uh, until Duran came up. So that freed him up to go back to second base. But Christian Arroyo had been quite good at second base for the last month or two. And it was going to be interesting to see how they fit those pieces together. Ironically, what happened was, I think on Sunday night on the national TV game, they tried to put Arroyo at first base to get both Arroyo and Hernandez at the lineup. I think it might have been Arroyo's first career game at first base. And sure enough, he pulled a hamstring trying to stretch for stretch for a bad throw. So that's what happens when you put second baseman at first base, I guess. Um, I, I think there's uh, still something to watch here. In my, I, I did a chat on the website uh, we go, Brent and I always do chats on Monday with Monday Monday's noontime with our subscribers. Brent usually does them, but he was away this week, so I pitched in. And we were talking, we were chatting about Duran. Got a question about the Red Sox. Uh, Chris Olson, who's our Red Sox uh, AL East guy for playing time tomorrow, kind of chimed in and was talking about the at that point very recent Arroyo injury and speculating about the Red Sox getting into fir- first base in the trade market. So uh, first base has been a a, a wasteland of non-production for the Red Sox so you know the trying to play a Royal there was a stopgap but you have to think that in the next 10 days or so they're going to find somebody to come in and uh, stabilize first base so what when, when a Royal comes back off the DL he may be even more squeezed for a bats now I noticed uh, having Michael Chavis on my fantasy roster that he turned up again, uh, continued striking out all over the place. But the other night, Danny Santana also got hurt. Uh, I don't know exactly what happened. He was chasing a ball in left field and stumbled awkwardly. And it looked like maybe he banged his knee off the turf and that was it. But they were talking about that he had just come back from a quad injury and it was possible that maybe that got aggravated. What's the news as far as you've heard about Danny Santana? Because if he's not playing, now you've got more outfield opportunities yet again. Yeah, Santana was another of those uh, playing time losers with uh, the the Duran arrival. Although, uh, if he's out of the picture, that could put Hernandez back into more of a true fourth outfielder role. But now he's got to cover second base, too. So they're stretched a little bit thin, which is why Chavez Chavez is back, to your point. Um, So, But Santana, I mean, he's hitting a buck seventy-one. I, I don't think he, if he ends up on the DL for this particular stint or if he hangs around for a couple more days day to day, I don't think he's on this roster after the trade deadline. I think he's back to AAA or gone as they as they fortify the bench here. I, I, I just don't think he's uh, g- going to get a lot more chances to show that he's better than what he's done so far. Uh, Chavis may stick around. I've, I've long thought Chavis might also end up as a throw in to a, uh, a, a deadline deal to bring in some other guys. I think he's sort of played out what he is in Boston. He's up to, I think he's age 26 now and has really only had any success in the majors as a, as a bad side platoon bat. So that might be where he has to fit in on another team. I don't think he really fits on this roster that way. So I I think the Red Sox have a bunch of uh, transactions coming in the next 10 days or so. And this, uh, this little game of musical chairs may look more clear after that. 
Funny thing, I was reading the other day that uh, Mitch Moreland might be on their radar to come back to Boston and and give them a left-handed bat, which wouldn't hurt. Uh, I was thinking about what you said about uh, Kike Hernandez, Enrique Hernandez, as a fourth outfielder type of guy, but Boston has really relied on Hernandez to hit at the top of the order this year. He's got 63 games so far this season where he's batted first, and he's acquitted himself reasonably well with an on-base percentage in the 320s over that time. Is there any chance that they're just going to start using uh, Hernandez the way that they used to use uh, Tony Phillips in Chicago and guys like that where we're going to find a place for this guy every day and he can just rotate around, but we need him at the top of the order? Or do they have alternatives? I wouldn't say he's a good fit at the top of the order, but he's the best fit they have right now. So, yeah, I think that does give him a stake in, toward that role. The biggest threat to that is probably Duran. They're keeping Duran down in the six, seven, eight spots to get him acclimated. But if he goes a couple of weeks and looks like he can provide on base percentage, he could take over at the top of the lineup and, you know, in, in September, I would think. But yeah, Hernandez has been very good. And, you know, going back to even when the Red Sox signed him, they, you know, Hernandez said he chose Boston over other offers because they said they wanted to make him an everyday player. He wanted to be an everyday player. He didn't want to be a Tony Phillips. He wanted to be an everyday second baseman. And he was like that until to, to start the season, but then very quickly has played as you know as much in the outfield as he has, in fact, way more in the outfield than he has at second base. But with Duran up, I wouldn't be surprised, especially with Arroyo out, if he does go back and sort of become more of an everyday second baseman now and let Duran, Renfro, and Verdugo be the everyday outfield. And you can either take Danny Santana as the fourth outfielder or plug somebody else into that role and but leave Hernandez alone at second base. The you know uh, the fact that Arroyo was playing well was kind of the only thing stopping that from happening when Duran came up. But now that Arroyo's on the DL, I think Hernandez is probably going to play his next 10 to 15 games at second base, I would think. In Kansas City, boy, like they didn't have enough trouble. They lost two pieces out of their rotation on the same day. Danny Duffy was placed on the 10-day IL. He's got a left flexor strain. I think that's two times for that particular injury this year and doesn't augur well for his future. And uh, right-hander Brady Singer, uh, I've seen some good things about Brady Singer as well. He goes on the 10-day IL. He's got right shoulder fatigue, also not a diagnosis that you want to hear for a pitcher you have. In addition to all the uh, difficulties that Kansas City was having anyways, this is really terrible news for them, it seems. And for anybody who happened to have either of these pitchers on a fantasy roster, there's probably not a lot to see in the replacement stock that's going to turn up in Kansas City. Yeah, that is exactly right. It's a tough blow for KC. And you know, I, I also wondered when I read this news item how much of a harbinger of this was going to be for what we see from other teams down the stretch, You know, keeping in mind that the Royals are integrating young pitchers and then Duffy, who has you know missed a lot of time with injury over the years. And you know, these guys were going to have innings limits anyway. And that might be what uh, what we're running into in in the case of Brady Singer. You know, I'm not so sure he wasn't going to get shut down fairly soon anyway. But, you know, and they're, they're going to protect his shoulder. Obviously, he's a big part of that rotation going forward. But other teams are going to run into variations of this problem pretty soon. And. Kansas City, like most other teams, are you know, the, the replacement options they call upon are going to be fairly bleak. Here they're turning to Carlos Hernandez, who has been working in sort of a multi-inning relief role for the bulk of the season. As they've also been managing his workload, and you know he's been unremarkable. He's got a you know, 4.15 expected ERA, and that's at that's in a 
you know, sort of one, you know, nine, 10, 12 batter at a time clip. We'll see how much further he gets exposed in a, you know, in a rotation role. And then there's Chris Bubich, who, uh, Bubich, who has, you know, been tagged lately uh, in the last 31 days, you know, only 17 innings uh, because he wasn't getting anybody out. He had a 727 ERA in those 17 innings. So that's probably about 16 more than you want to be giving him. Uh, his, but for the full season, his, you know, his ERA is up over five now and his monthly splits are trending in the wrong direction. Uh, you know, he had a, you know, he had a really good month of May that turned a lot of heads with uh, a 152 ERA that was not really well supported by a 461 expected ERA. And since then, the regression in Ju- has hit hard in June and July. He's been tagged the last uh, the last month and a half or so. So um, not a lot of reason to go scurrying to the waiver wire for whoever fills these spots in the ro- rotation in Kansas City, whether it's Hernandez, Bubich, or anybody else. Jock Thompson covered the story for Playing Time Today at BaseballHQ.com, Ray, and a couple of names that he mentioned from earlier in the season. Is there any reason for us to be interested in Daniel Lynch returning or Jackson Cower? Yeah, we're probably going to see those guys just as the Royals play ahead, look look ahead and play for 2022 here. Those guys both had troubles in their first call-ups, but they're likely to come back and because they're part of the rotation, so they're going to want to try to get them straightened out. I will confess I have not gone to look to see how they are uh, sort of looking their wounds in AAA after getting knocked around in the majors. But sure, they're going to get more shots as either post post deadline call ups or September call ups. They're they're likely to each get a little bit more work because they are going to be parts of the projected twenty twenty two rotation. In Los Angeles, uh, talking about guys getting called up, how about? Brandon Marsh, the outfielder, has been called up from AAA, and he's off to a pretty ripping start to his first 11 at-bats, 364, 417, 455. Um, not enough to really dent his fantasy value at Baseball HQ. He's still in the minuses, but that's just a result of not having no counting stats to speak of. But the underlying stats look okay, but not so great, especially in the power area, which is something that I think people are kind of looking at him as a possible source. Yeah, the, you know, he's been mentioned, you know, the same breath as Joe Adele for the last couple of years coming up with the uh, through the Angels system. And it might be a little bit of a surprise that he got here first. Of course, Adele has been sidetracked by injuries and, uh, you know, st- poor performance stretches over the years. But the, the power really hasn't manifested for Marsh in the minors yet either. Uh, you know, he had, you know, four home runs and 108 at-bats in AAA this year and his career high for a full season is 10 home runs going back to 2018. So, you know, power is not at least yet part of his game. I got a really interesting question in that uh, chat on Monday that I, I uh, thought was relevant, though, since we've talked about both guys here. Somebody asked that they had one roster spot available in their in their mixed league and were asking whether Jaron Duran or March would be a better pickup, uh, which I thought was a pretty fascinating question. By our, by our prospect ratings, Brandon March got called up with a with an eight B rating, uh, which is a everyday regular and a high probability of hitting that ceiling. And uh, Jaron Duran was a seven B, which is uh, you know some significantly less upside there. However, we set those prospect ratings at the beginning of the season and don't and are generally loath to change them in season. We kind of only do it with full season sample sizes. So the seven B on Duran didn't really account for the fact that his power had emerged in triple a this year. So I thought these guys were actually, that actually makes these guys pretty equivalent, uh, you know, pretty similar profiles, 
you know, we, we still need to see that Duran's going to carry over his power outburst from AAA to the majors. But I think they're, they actually profile pretty similarly, at least for the rest of this season. But I thought it was uh, an interesting comparison for me to put on my prospect hat. And, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not the prospect guy. So in general, we don't want to be doing that. But I was the one answering the questions in chat. So I gave it a shot. One of the things about Adele, he's actually doing pretty well in AAA, as you mentioned. He's hitting 280, 290, somewhere in there, with a 569 slug and a 900 OPS, which is really good, at even at AAA. But the problem is, I think they wanted him to cut down on the strikeouts, and he just hasn't. He's still striking out 30% of the time. Is that going to keep Joe Adele in the minor leagues for the foreseeable future until he does get that swing and miss under control? Yeah, I thought the fact that he was hitting well in the minors, like you said, and they still chose to call up Marsh was confirmation of what you're saying, that they really have some things they want Adele to work on. Adele is, you know, super toolsy and talented, but I think having, since he was up during the short 2020 season and, you know, really did not fare well and that strikeout problem got totally exposed, I think they want him to really button down just about everything they can down there. And then when they get him back up to the, to the majors and install him in the Anaheim and outfield that he, they have the hope that he is there for good. So does that mean that Marsh gets a couple of weeks and if Marsh shows cracks in his game, then they swap them in a couple of weeks and call up Adele possibly, or maybe we don't see Adele until September and they try to ease him in and just sort of send him into the off season on the high note of having a to triple a for the entire summer and then getting a cup of coffee in the majors in September. We'll see. I'm not exactly sure how they're reading it, but I, I don't take it to mean that they don't like Adele as much anymore. I think they're just really trying to, uh, you, you know, shore up the cracks in Adele's game and let the, uh, let the potentially very high ceiling skill shine through. And the reason it's important, I think, that he get that strikeout rate down in the minors is in the minors, it's pretty consistently been 30%. And when he had his turn at bat in the major leagues last year, it was 41% or 42%. And I think as an MLE, uh, that's probably what you'd expect. Pitching in the major leagues is quite a bit better than it is in the minor leagues. And if you're already striking out that much at AAA, then the chances that you're going to be an impact player at the major league level is reduced. It's just a common sense, and they may have uh, metrics to look at that. So if you're hanging on to your Joe Adele, watch your minor league stats and see if he uh, seems to be getting a few more walks and a few less strikeouts, I think. Uh, if you're Keeping an eye on Joe Adele is a possible sign for later in the season. Do the same thing. I think that's going to be the telling statistic along with everything else. And of course, Joe Adele's pathway will be more blocked. Uh, everybody's outfield pathways in uh, LA are going to be blocked pretty soon. They have a kid named Trout who's going to be making his return to center field, and that's going to push everybody down a peg. I've heard he's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, he's not bad. Sign him if you can. Uh, finally, Ray, uh, last week we talked about first pitch Arizona. The date has been set. It's really exciting. But at the time that we talked about it, we weren't exactly sure what was going on with the Arizona Fall League itself, whether there were going to be games, when their games were going to start, and so on. You have news, and I have to say it sounds to me like good news. It is good news. There was actually an announcement earlier this week that the AFL will be back and uh, its dates line up with our conference. Actually, we will be there for the opening weekend. If the AFL season is going to open on Wednesday, October 13th. And our conference one runs that week, Thursday the 14th through Sunday the 17th. We sort of had good information on that. Uh, we had reached out to sources and they told us generically mid-October. 
So the, 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 we didn't have the exact date, and we were we were a little nervous that our that they would start like the Monday after we were all out there all, all uh, for the conference, which of course would have been uh, really bad news. But but it all worked out well, and we were you know sort of promoting the conference with one hand behind our back for the last couple of weeks while we were just kind of, kind of waiting for all this stuff to snap into place. But now that it has snapped into place, we are full steam ahead. We are uh, said. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably got an email blast from us this week about it, and we have, uh, you know, it's going to be up on the front of the homepage all weekend. There's a big logo on the right side of the homepage that will be there right through the conference now. So uh, we are full steam ahead. We will have announcements of speakers and topics and conference uh, agendas all coming into shape in the coming weeks. But for now, uh, start looking at your flights because we are meeting in the desert. We are doing it live, and we cannot be more excited. I have to ask because I'm sure some people are going to be concerned about uh, gathering indoors with a lot of people. What is going to be the rules, vaccinations, masks, that sort of thing to inhibit the spread of COVID? Yeah, that's a great question. And we have actually gotten that question a bunch of times as well. Uh, obviously, we would, while we would encourage everyone to get vaccinated before they come, we are not going to have a vaccine requirement, but um, we're still kind of working it through the uh, corporate legal channels, but what will probably happen, as I expect, it will be a uh, we will ask everyone to uh, adhere to a policy of wearing a mask if they are not vaccinated, or of course, if you are vaccinated and choose to wear a mask too, that is of course fine. So uh, it will be a mask-friendly and vaccination-friendly environment. I'm curious about the minor leaguers that we might see and the prospects that we might see. And the first thing that popped into my mind is they didn't get to have a 2020 AFL. They didn't get to have minor leagues in 2020. Do you think that's going to help or impede the flow of top-level prospects into the AFL this year, given the fact that they didn't get a lot of developmental opportunities last year? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I was musing about this a little bit over uh the all-star break when we were looking at the draft and the fought and the, um, the minor league all-star game and those sorts of things. My off the cuff response is that it might be a more extreme version of what we always see out there, which is really good hitting and some shaky pitching. Uh, it might be tough for them to get, I'm, I'm envisioning it would be tough for teams to send top pitchers out there after having missed 2020 and then managing so many people's innings limits and that sort of thing. They may have, you know, many of the top prospects, except for the injured ones, may have thrown as many innings as they wanted to this year. But you may, on, on the flip side, you may see as many of the um, top pro batting prospects going out there to get more work in, to make up for lost time, et cetera. I also wonder whether we're going to see some of the recent draftees, too, the uh, Jack Letters and um, Kumar Rockers and those sorts of guys who, you know, if they want to get them on a, you know, on a trajectory to be ready to pitch in the majors in 2022, you know, those guys just finished their college season and usually they take a little bit of downtime here. You know, Rocker signed already, for instance. I don't think Leiter has, but I, I don't know if you'll see Rocker in the minors this year. But, you know, that would be the AFL now that it's on track for mid October might be a very interesting place for some of those guys to make their professional debuts, which I think from a attendee perspective for you and IPD would be just fine, right? Yes, I'd like to see a, a lot of those guys. And in the past, we've been pretty lucky that way. Even when they started not sending pitchers, we did see some pretty interesting pitchers. I remember seeing um, 
Mark Appel. We were all excited to see him, and he didn't look good in, in the Arizona <laughs> like, Fall League. Like, wow, I'm glad we get to see him. He's terrible. <laughs> well, you know, it helps you make up your mind if you're in leagues where you have to make those kind of decisions in or around that time. So uh, when do the prospects usually get announced? You know, it, it tends to be toward the end of the minor league season. Uh, you know, they start dripping out in like mid-August as they, you know, as the as the uh, double and triple A seasons get down to their last week or two. I just saw an announcement that they actually did just extend the triple A season by a week. I, I assume just to try to create more of a rehab environment for the major leaguers for a little bit longer into Labor Day and early September. But usually, in the second half of August, you get an initial wave of the rosters being released, and then the, you know there may be some additions or uh, opt outs and replacements trickling out after that but uh you know around august 15th or so is generally when those things come out and it might be a little bit later this year since the league doesn't start till october 13th whereas it was starting uh you know in late september in the last year back in 2019 so uh we'll wait and see but as soon as we get that information we will trumpet it because getting a nice scroll of come to arizona to see ronald acuna vlad guerrero jr albert pujols you know <laughs> those, those are always good uh promotional material for us. So we, we keep an eye on those and, and keep them up on the website, et cetera. And one last question, Ray, I was going to ask you this during the main part of it before we started talking about first pitch, but it just popped back into my mind. And that is the Toronto Blue Jays have announced that they are coming back to Rogers Center effective at the end of the month. They're going to start a series with Kansas City in Toronto and all the rest of their home games will be played in what used to be called Skydome, now called the Rogers Center. And I'm wondering for you as a projections guy those projections incorporate park effects to a certain degree are you going to have to do any significant recalibration of especially the toronto lineup given the fact that they're moving out of a fairly friendly offensive environment in buffalo and earlier in dunedin and move into back into the big league club is there that big of a difference that it's going to be significant do you think especially for vladdy guerrero jr as he chases a triple crown I, I, I'm absolutely going to pull up the projection spreadsheet and take a take a look at it. My sense is it probably doesn't make a difference just because there are so few games left. They're going to play. I don't know what the number is. You probably know it. It can't be more than 30 games up in up in Skydome, right? So the uh, you know even if there's a difference of pick a number, you know, for Vlad as an example, three home runs over a full season. We're talking about you know a homer and a quarter in 30 games. So it's probably pretty negligible. But I will run the park factors through the uh, through the spreadsheet and see what burps out to see if it's uh, significant enough to mark to warrant me sort of regenerating everything from scratch uh having watched the uh the red sox up there this week and seeing you know five home runs every night i uh, I, I certainly appreciate what you're saying the ball has been you know i think it may have jumped out of dunedin a little less than we expected but buffalo has been everything we expected and more right Indeed, uh, Toronto has played 43 home games so far this year, so there'll be 38 left for them to play. And it sounds like a lot of games, but in the great scheme of a 162-game schedule, it's, what, roughly 25%, a little less, 23 or 22%. So there may be some effect. I think you're right. Uh, maybe the effects are going to be more subtle than how many balls fly over fences. There are other park effects besides home runs. So we'll, we'll wait and see. I guess it'll be pretty interesting. Uh, Ray, thanks for helping us out again this week. This was really interesting. Uh, great news about the Arizona Fall League, make sure you check out BaseballHQ.com. What's that URL? Uh, BaseballHQ.com slash first-pitch-Arizona. Thanks again, Ray. Talk to you next week. You bet.
Ray Murphy is co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com and covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Derek Carty, the developer of the BAT and the BATX projection systems, coming to the plate for his second at-bat next on Baseball HQ Radio. You are challenged by the game of baseball to do your very best day in and day out. And that's all I've ever tried to do. Thank you. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Derek Carty, the developer of the BAT and the BAT-X projection systems. Derek, welcome back to the show for part two. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Let's. Uh, I mean, part one was fun, so let's see what else we have. Well, you've invented a couple of projection systems, the BAT and uh, more recently the BAT-X, and I'd like to start back in uh, the Genesis area. When did you decide to build a new projection system, the BAT, and why focus it on DFS play? Yeah, so I started building it before DFS was even a thing. I just started building it because I thought it would be cool, because I thought it would give me an edge in in my own uh, season-long leagues. And then once DFS came around, I was, you know, nearing completion of the system and I realized um, kind of how perfect uh, it would be for DFS play, you know, especially right at the kind of the inception of DFS, there were really no projection systems out there for it. And so um, it seemed like there was, you know, a, a really good market for it. I thought this was a, a game format that could wind up being really popular. And, and it was a, it, it offered its own unique, you know, cool um, analytical challenges. You know, things that we don't necessarily care a whole lot about on the season-long level can matter a lot in DFS. You know, on the season-long level, we don't really consider umpires very often because over the course of the season, players are more or less going to, you know, see an even mix of umpires. One day you're going to see a pitcher's umpire, the next you're going to see a hitter's umpire, and over 162 games, it's going to basically even out. Uh, but on a daily basis... Um, it doesn't even out at all. You only get one umpire per day. And so it matters a lot. You know, weather matters a lot. And so it offered uh, some some interesting challenges that, uh, you know, the, the whole reason I got into this in the first place was because I love the math aspect of it. I loved studying different things. And so it offered um, kind of new cool things to study that, you know, you never even think about for season long. You've written that you wanted to reduce the variability within platoon splits. What steps did you take to do that, and why is it important? Yeah, platoon splits are so noisy. So many people don't understand how noisy platoon splits are. Even good DFS players still think they can derive meaning from these things that you really can't, especially for hitters. Like, hitter platoon splits are so noisy, you're better off just ignoring them unless you really know what you're doing. Um. But for pitchers, um, even though they are uh, also noisy to an extent, not quite as noisy as hitters, um, there are reasons for pitchers to have a particular platoon split. And so um, I wanted to, to build that into a projection system so that it could have more confidence in a pitcher's platoon split. And particularly what I'm talking about is, is arm angles and pitch mix. Um, and you can come up with any number of examples of pitchers to – to kind of illustrate this, if you have a pitcher with a really low arm angle, think of like uh, uh, Darren O'Day or Brad Ziegler or Justin Masterson a few years ago, or like guys like that, they all have wide platoon splits because that's just the way low arm angle guys um, 
you know, work. Their, their pitches move more side to side than up to down. And, and that's just kind of how it works. Um, each particular pitch type has its own, um, you know, unique uh, platoon split. Generally speaking, sinkers and sliders have uh, bigger platoon splits. Uh, Change-ups and curves have uh, reverse platoon splits. And so looking at what types of pitches a guy throws and what angle he throws from can give us a really good insight into what his platoon split is going to be going forward and really help us kind of cut out some of the noise of just looking at the actual stats. That is really interesting information. You also developed a couple of new data inputs relating to catchers. Uh, pitch framing has obvious positive or negative effects on pitcher success. But So how did you incorporate framing into the pitcher forecasting? Right. So I, I certainly didn't invent pitch framing. There, There's a lot of places who do it, a lot of people who do it really well. But I do incorporate it into the bat because it is uh, important. It's become less important basically every year for the last many, many years. Um, but it's still important. It still matters. It's essentially a, a catcher's ability to, to steal strikes for his pitcher or to lose strikes for his pitcher, uh, to kind of almost trick the umpire into thinking that a ball is a strike. And uh, some catchers are really good at it. Some catchers are are not so good at it. Um, but it can, it can add up. You know, you're going to help a pitcher get more strikes, which is going to help him get into more favorable counts more strikeouts, fewer walks, um, more favorable counts just also impact, um, you know, uh, you know, how often home runs and, and general base hits are, are, you know, are allowed. So it can really help a pitcher a lot. Although over time it's become less important because major league teams have realized, uh, what an edge it was, uh, especially initially, you know, before it was really like public knowledge or, or widespread across teams, the teams that were doing it, were getting a huge edge using these types of catchers. But now that pretty much all teams are aware of it, uh, the catchers that were really, really bad pitch framers aren't getting jobs you know, anymore. And, and catchers are realizing that it's important, and so they're working on it more. And so um, it's, it's a relative thing. You know? if, if everyone is a, good, is a good pitch framer, nobody's a good pitch framer. And so uh, the, the spread in talent has gotten uh, much more condensed over time. I don't know if you know this, and if you don't, that's fine, but are certain umpires more susceptible to pitch framing than certain others based on where the ball actually is versus how the ball gets called? That's a really good question. I don't know the answer. Um, I would think possibly. Uh, I've never studied it, but that's uh, that's really interesting. I can't believe that it's not, you know, because the umpire is... Some of them are good at calling balls and strikes. We know some of them are not so good. And it seems like the ones who are not so good would be more easily fooled. I don't know for a fact. Uh, I, I'm i pretty sure that in the next 10 years or so, they're going to be replaced by the robo-umps, so it's probably not going to matter. But in the meantime, the framing is less important. I just want to make sure I understand this because everybody's doing it, so there's no relative advantage. Right, Exactly. One of the most important differences in the BATS forecasting toolbox is that you incorporate weather. You mentioned that earlier, and I'm quoting you here, from temperature to air pressure. How does all of that work? Where do you get the stats? How do you apply them? Yeah, so weather is hugely important, especially on a daily basis. And it's still, it's, a, it's something that people have started paying more attention to, but it's still something that, that does offer us a big edge that people do not account for uh, properly. Um, but the way I did it was 
I mean, it, it was very tedious. I, uh, I collected uh, weather data from um, actual um, weather, uh, I don't know, weather stations, you know, actual weather weather websites, you know, like the weatherchannel.com, not, not them, but like websites like that from weather stations near ballparks um, at, at the time of each game. And so I, I collected all that. I made a database of all the weather conditions for, for every game for many, many, many years. And, and I studied it and I looked at what different weather conditions do, you know, what is the difference in home run rate in, you know, BABIP in strikeout rate and whatever, uh, when it's 30 degrees compared to 90 degrees. Um, and, and, you know, with a, a giant sample size of many years of baseball data, I can tell you exactly the difference between 72 degrees and 73 degrees on every single stat in baseball. And so once you figure out the impact of each of each degree of temperature, each percent of humidity, each mile per hour of wind, like whatever, um, then you can just look on a daily basis and say, okay, today's game is going to be, uh, you know, 84 degrees with uh, 56% relative humidity. And this is the sea level pressure. And this is the wind. And uh, it can tell you, you know, exactly what has happened uh, historically in baseball games at, at that exact, you know, at that exact weather, basically. And, uh, and you can apply that to your projection for today to see whether uh, you expect it to, you know, boost offense or boost pitching or, you know, whatever. So it's, uh, it's, it's really important and it makes much more of a difference than people would, would think it does. Can you give us an example of a kind of day that would be uh, detrimental to hitters and advantageous to pitchers and or vice versa? Yeah, so generally speaking, um, hotter games are better for hitters and colder games are better for pitchers. Um, there is a probably like a flattening effect. You don't want it to be too cold um, because then the pitcher has a harder time gripping the ball and that sort of thing. Um, but the, the big reason that temperature matters so much um, and it's an invisible effect. So you can forgive people for not understanding why it's so important because you can't really see it. Um, but it matters because of its impact on air density. Um, when a ball is struck off the bat and it's flying towards the, you know, the fence in center field, um, there's always air that is acting upon the ball, applying friction to the ball. Um, and slowing the ball down a little bit. That's why balls don't go forever. They stop eventually because there is air pressure being applied to the ball and slowing it down. And um, the more, you know, the greater the air pressure, the more frictions applied to the ball, the quicker it slows down. And obviously the less air pressure, you know, the slow, you know, it doesn't slow down as much. It goes farther, um, that sort of thing. And so uh, hotter temperatures basically uh, expand the air molecules. And so there is less air pressure or less air density rather, and less friction being applied to the baseball. And so the baseball, you know, goes farther when it's hotter. And so that's, that's really why it matters and you can't see it, but it's happening. It's there, it's science. And, uh, and it makes a big difference. Air density being the number of molecules that are in a given amount of space, I suppose, and there's just more of them when the air is cold, so there's more molecules to get in the way of the ball moving. But if that's true of a batted ball, is it also not true of a thrown ball? Is Why is why is a pitcher at an advantage in a cooler environment than uh, the optimal environment for a hitter if the, the environment itself is slowing balls down? Does it not also affect a thrown ball, pitched ball? 
Yeah, it'll it'll affect the pitch ball a little bit, but not to the same extent. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, I would imagine the reason is because a pitch ball has to go whatever it is, 66 feet or something like that. So it reaches the plate a lot quicker. Um, sometimes it's it's thrown harder than than a ball is hit. Um, but uh, but really, I, I think it just it has it doesn't have to go as far, and so there's less time for the air to work on it. Um, whereas a baseball, if you're trying to hit a home run, you got to go 400, 425 feet. Um, that that's a big difference, and so there's there's more time for the air to exert its its pressure on uh, on a, on a struck ball. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, and also the the uh, path of the ball is obviously more ballistic on a on a fly ball that's headed for the outfield seats. It's going to describe an arc, whereas a thrown ball is going to be more or less straight, except for maybe right, right at the end. So that probably enters into it too. I wonder though. I've read about the density of the air having an effect on the ability of a pitcher to, to take advantage of the spin to, to make the ball move more aggressively and that in hot air it's less, because there's less of the air for it to, to grab onto, for the seams to grab onto, that that's another disadvantage for pitchers in that if you're, you know, 55 degree day air density gets the ball to move seven inches in 95 degrees, the air's thinner. Maybe it, in this case, it, maybe it does have an effect because the, uh, the amount of curvature is going to change or so I think, am I just out, out in left field here? Yeah. I mean, I'm still kind of in the process of studying <clears throat> pitch trajectory type stuff. That's uh, that's going to be the next big, big advancement with, uh, with the bad X for pitchers. Um, so I'm still studying all that type of thing, um, but I would imagine it does make uh, it does make a little bit of a difference for sure. It's going to impact the movement of the ball and, and all that type of thing. You make a point of noting that the bat doesn't use some data that other systems do use, and which seem kind of obvious for most people, especially in a DFS forecasting tool, especially batter versus pitcher data. It seems like a no-brainer. You got to have that in, and you say no. Yeah, batter versus pitcher data is uh, is one of the biggest mistakes that kind of amateur DFS players make. They tend to think that, um, okay, well, if I drill down as uh, as specifically as possible to situations just like this, then I'm going to derive meaning out of them that I won't be able to get otherwise. And that's just not true. Because the more you drill down and the more specific you get with your split or with your whatever, um, the smaller your sample size is. And as we've talked about a lot, sample size matters. You know, if you're drilling down to just what this hitter has done against this pitcher, maybe you have 10 or 20 at bats, um, over the, over their entire careers. And it's not even like these guys are, are the same players that they were, you know, you have, uh, Mike Trout versus Felix Hernandez recently, I, I think is one that people love to talk about is like, Oh, Mike Trout has great great BVP against Felix Hernandez, but like they're different players. Felix Hernandez, especially pitchers over the course of their career, they change so much. It's not even like they're the same guy over, over time. Um, and even if, you know, you had the 10 at bats or 20 at bats just in the last year, you throw that out that consideration altogether. You're still only dealing with 10 or 20 at bats. Um, and I'm not saying that some hitters don't see some pitchers better. They probably do. What I'm saying is that you can't tell that from the data because the sample size is so small. Because of what we know about randomness in baseball, 
over 10 or 20 at-bats, literally anything can happen. There are going to be so many guys in 10 or 20 at-bats against a pitcher that just do really well or really poorly just by random chance. You're going to have a whole bunch of guys like that basically muddying the waters. For every guy that, you know, let's say is, is does have legitimate BVP, is legitimately better against this pitcher. Um, you're going to have, for every one of those guys, you're going to have 10 or 20 that have good BVP just by sheer randomness. And so if you try to use it to try to find that one guy, you're going to be wrong more than you're right because of the random ones. Another one you talked about was uh, park effects, and I can see why you wouldn't really apply them for pitchers, but you also don't apply them to hitters as much as uh, other systems or at all. Why, why, why is that the way you approach it? No, I, I think park effects are, are hugely important. Um, park, park effects matter a lot. What I don't like is looking at players' actual stats in a park. Again, for the same reason as BVP, because you're cutting down your sample size. If I'm looking at what this player has done in Fenway Park, um, I'm taking, uh, if, if he's a road player, I'm taking 130th probably of his entire sample size. If he's a home player, I'm still cutting it in half. And, uh, and you're throwing out lots and lots of valuable information, even if it is a home player and you're looking at just the home road or just what he's done in his home park. You're throwing out so much of what he's actually done and you're doing it unnecessarily. Because we can isolate park effects. We know that Coors Field is an amazing hitter's park. So why are you going to look at what a hitter has done in Coors Field, introduce a whole bunch of noise, reduce your sample size, when you can look at who a player is, you can look at his underlying talent level, and then you can apply the Coors Field park factor to the underlying talent level that is derived from his entire body of work. It just, it's, it just makes no sense to look at the actual numbers in the park. In fact, you said some of these popular metrics are not just useless for accurate projections, they're actually detrimental. What did you mean by that? What I mean is that uh, if you use them, you're going to be less accurate than if you don't use them. You're going to use these things thinking they have meaning, and because they have more randomness than you realize, you're going to be less accurate in predicting what the guy's going to do going forward because you're looking at something that doesn't actually have predictive value. You're going to be misled by the stat, thinking it has meaning when it doesn't. And so instead of using something that does have meaning, you're using something that doesn't. And uh, you're going you're gonna to think he's going to do this one thing. Oh, he's got this great BVP against this pitcher. He must be good against this pitcher. Uh, when in reality, he's not. He did it randomly. And now you're banking on him being really good. Uh, and, uh, and that's not true. He's, and in the future, you're going to be wrong. Yeah, I can see that. So you have a bunch of data that actually work and then you submarine it by putting in this random factor. It's it's like coming up with a really good algorithm to figure something out that includes rolling the dice. <laughs> you know, if it comes up six, then it's going to be good. Yeah, well. <laughs> That's a great example. Like you're just, you're just throwing in a bunch of randomness for no reason. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Derek Carty from Roto Grinders, ESPN, EV Analytics, Fangraphs, and The Athletic. And Derek, after developing the bat projection system, which was a pretty major accomplishment and took a long time, you decided to 
work on a new system called the Bat X. Where's the added value coming from, and why did you decide to keep reinventing the wheel? Yeah, the added value is coming from the addition of StatCast data. And, and I did it because I realized that as good as the bat was, um, there, there were things that could make it better. You know, we have this great new StatCast data. Um, you know, as far as I knew, most systems weren't like fully, um, fully leveraging the usefulness of it. And so I thought it could give, give me an advantage and, and make the bat better. And, and that's what we've seen so far. You actually came up with a new system that was entirely based on StatCast data. You called it the BatCast, which I loved that name, uh, going back to my childhood with the da 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 batman sort of stuff, and they had bat this and bat that. You said StatCast data gives us better insights into, and I'm quoting here, a hitter's intentional process-level decisions. I think that's fascinating. What did it mean? Um. I mean, what I mean is that when we're looking at traditional stats, home run rate, strikeout rate, whatever, like they tell us plenty of plenty of good things about a player, but they don't necessarily tell us. Um, they, they tell us what happened, but they don't necessarily tell us why it happened. And Statcast gets us closer uh, to that that why answer. Okay, well, the hitter hit a bunch of home runs. Great. Why did he hit a bunch of home runs? Uh, he hit a bunch of home runs because he hits the ball hard, and because he has, uh, you know, a launch angle that is conducive to home runs, and and to a large extent, those are those are conscious choices that players are making. A player is choosing to swing uh, with a little bit of an uppercut um, if he's trying to hit home runs or that type of thing. And like we talked about before, there's sample size concerns and whatnot, um, but they do get us closer to understanding those process level decisions that players are making. And then you took the original data from the bat and the algorithms and stuff and combined in some or all of the StatCast from BatCast and you called the hybrid the BatX. Did you include all the StatCast data and all of the Bat data in BatX or is it a combination of the best of both? That Because it feels to me like there's going to be some interactions between them that you might be able to use to optimize the system's results and its ability to forecast accurately. How did you decide what the mix of bat and bat cast was going to be to create bat X? Right. Yeah. So that's exactly it. It's kind of the best of both worlds type of thing. It's taking the, the original version of the bat, which was very, very good, but mostly uses traditional stats. Uh, and it's using the bat cast, which is just using stat cast stats. Um, and it's, it's taking the best of both. And the way I kind of figured out the proportions was just to look uh, historically at what proportions tended to maximize accuracy. And that's going to change from, from statistic to statistic. For home runs, uh, the StatCast data is going to matter um, more than it will for, for singles or for doubles or something like that, which makes sense because uh, the, the, most, the data that we get out of StatCast, what, what it really tells us uh, best is kind of you know, the launch angles and the and the exit velocity, which which influence home runs more than anything else, and so using Statcast more for home runs than for strikeouts, say, uh, makes makes more sense. So you don't want to. I didn't just want to apply an even weighting to everything. I looked at, um, you know, the types of players and uh, uh, and then the individual kind of stat categories that we're trying to project. How has the change in the equipment that StatCast uses at the ballparks, they moved from TrackMan radar-based systems to Hawkeye camera-based systems, how have those changes affected the outputs that feed the StatCast metrics that we see and that you use in the BatX? 
I mean, the the technology behind it is is different and changes. And ideally, you would like uniformity, but also you like improvement. So it's kind of a balancing act. Um, but ultimately, the outputs are are more or less the same. You know, yeah, yeah. We started with uh, uh, with TrackMan, and it tracked exit velocities and launch angles. And then we switched to Hawkeye um, last year. Um, but the the end result, you know, that we're seeing is still the same. We're still getting a launch angle. We're still getting an exit velocity. It may not be a completely apples to apples comparison, but you just do the best you can with it. And and at least it's given in the same format, you know, the same, the same, it's, it's trying to tell us the same thing. The Bad X at Fangraphs, you can check it out at Fangraphs for yourself if you're listening, but it doesn't include pitcher uh, forecasting. Why is it not including pitcher forecasting and when do you expect to add pitchers if ever uh i mean i'm hoping to add it as soon as possible you know probably by by the end of this season or sometime during the off season i i definitely expect to have the bad extra pitchers the reason i don't have it yet is because it's an entirely different thing that i'm designing than i did for hitters and that's because we have so much extra better data for pitchers than we have for hitters for hitters um, we're really looking on kind of the the event level. You know, the batter strikes the ball, and and you know that that's kind of where um, where Statcast starts from it is where the bat strikes the ball, and it tells us about the launch angle and the exit velocity and whatnot. But for pitchers, the data really starts from from the moment the pitch the ball leaves the pitcher's hand. We have all all different um, data on the trajectory of the pitch, the velocity, the movement, the spin, um, all that type of stuff. Um, that that really isn't relevant for for the hitter, and so there's so much more data to analyze, and it's so much more nuanced and complicated um, that uh, it's it's an entirely different um, you know set of tools that I'm using to build the bad X for pitchers. So it's not as easy as just saying, okay, I built this for hitters. Let's just uh, change change all the all the variables to pitchers and, and do the same thing. Um, that wouldn't really work because we have all these all these extra better variables for pitchers that you really want to incorporate. So, so that's why it's it's taken longer to do pitchers and why why it's not out yet. But uh, it it will be and it's going to be really good when it's out. Well, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, my first thought when I realized that the pitchers weren't in was why didn't you just reverse the hitter ones? Because isn't it the same? And of course it isn't. And I thought the same thing that you did that the the process begins earlier for the pitchers and I'll go even one step further back than you just said I think the process might even be said to start when the pitcher chooses what pitch he's going to throw and then he executes it after that and pitch choice and pitch mix I guess they call it now might be a factor as well oh absolutely yeah you're, you're totally right so it does start before it leaves his hand because he has to pick what he's throwing so yeah that that's going to make a big difference and that's part of why why this uh, is is more complicated than for hitters because not only are you evaluating spin and velocity and movement and trajectory and, and late break and tunneling and seam shifted wake and all that good stuff, uh, you have to do it for every pitch type differently. Um, velocity matters more for a fastball than it does for a slider. You know, spin matters more for one pitch than for another. Like it, it's it's entirely different from pitch to pitch. And actually, uh, I was talking about this last week with Tanner Smith, the absence of spin is actually more important for like change-ups than the presence of spin. The higher the spin rate, the worse the pitch is. So you got to factor that in as well. Yeah, I mean, we could have a whole, a whole podcast on, on spin and why people um, 
misinterpret spin and, and don't understand spin and the right ways to use spin and what we don't know about spin. And spin is a very, very complicated topic. It is nowhere near as simple as, as most people tend to make it out to be. More spin equals good, less spin equals bad. It is not that simple. <laughs> and uh, as Tanner explained to me, that really messes up the, uh, the thought process when you're looking at spin by the averages. Because a pitcher's pitch mix, if he's throwing lots of those low spin desired uh, pitches like change-ups, pulls down the overall average and somebody glancing at the list might go, oh, this guy's got very low spin rates. I'm not interested when, in fact, if he's predominantly a, a, a sinker a change-up type uh, pitcher where you don't want the spin, that's what you do want. And you might be missing out on a whole, uh, whole cadre of pitchers who are doing exactly what they want to be doing. It just doesn't look good because their average spin rate looks, quotes, low. Yep, exactly. And that's why uh, it's never as simple. There, there's no hard and fast rule for everything. It, it's not good spin equals or high spin equals good, low spin equals bad. It's so much more complicated than that. Pitching is such a nuanced and complicated thing to do. And there's so many different interactions between pitches and what pitchers are trying to do with their pitches and how they want pitches to look relative to each other. And there's just so much to it um, that there is just there's no simple answers. Other than adding pitchers to the Badex, what plans do you have to improve your projection systems over the next couple of years, say? I mean, for the time being, the Badex for pitchers really is, it's, it's going to be the biggest improvement, the biggest upgrade I've ever made to my systems ever. And so that, that's really the focus right now. Once that is done, um, I guess we'll have to see. And, and I think a lot of future future upgrades are going to depend on on how the game evolves, how technology evolves, what new tools we get access to. You know, right now, um, the Bad X is basically using everything we we have for hitters. It's going to use everything we have for pitchers. So it's just going to depend on, uh, you know, what cool toys we get next. They are cool toys. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David with Derek Carty from Roto Grinders, ESPN, EV Analytics, Fangraphs, and The Athletic. Uh, before we go... Derek, I always like to wrap these discussions by looking at some slumps, pumps, dumps, and jumps. Uh, let's start with the slump. This is a player who is struggling, but worth hanging on to. Yeah, Joe Musgrove is a guy who's really been uh, been struggling lately. I've heard a lot of people say, "Oh, well, it coincides with the sticky, the sticky ban. He must be, you know, not not the pitcher we thought he was early in the year." I still think Musgrove is an ace. I still have no problems with Musgrove. I think he's been in some tough spots lately. I think. The skills are still there. You know, his spin rates really haven't even fallen off that much. I think he's going to be be totally fine. He's a guy that I uh, very, very confident owning right now. How about a pump? This is a player who's overachieving. You might want to pump him up and sell him high. Uh, I mean, I think the obvious guy this year, um, especially if you're just looking at the, the overall season numbers, is Cedric Mullins. Like, he's just uh, – and, and he has fallen off a bit in July, so maybe – Maybe the window's closing or hopefully not completely closed yet. But, uh, I mean, his overall numbers still look fantastic. So if you can sell him or pump him on the merit of that, I would because I'm just not buying it. I don't think he's anywhere near as good as the hitter he's been this year. If you look at fan graphs on his page, um, there, there's not a single projection system that buys into Mullins as much more than a slightly above average hitter. 
do you give him any credit or how much credit should we give him for the fact that he was a pinch hitter and not successful and went all the way to the uh, left hand only? Yeah. So, I mean, pinch hitting, um, uh, it did, there is a penalty that comes along with it. So that's something that ideally uh, we would account for. And, and, you know, his, his older numbers probably undersell him a little bit. Uh, but I still don't think he's anywhere near the hitter that we're seeing this year. Okay, how about a dump? This is an underachiever that is, at this point, irrecoverable and worth dumping. It's hard because you always have to expect positive regression from from anyone who's having like an extreme outlier bad season. Um, but and, and I would imagine at this point he's probably been dumped by a lot of people, but... Patrick Corbin is a guy that the bat was really low on Corbin to begin with. Um, it still really doesn't like him. It's still the lowest system on him. Um, you look at fan graphs, like Steamer still projects Patrick Corbin for a four ERA. Uh, you know, but the bat is over four and a half. It's really not a big fan of Corbin. And uh, he's a guy that, especially in, in mixed leagues, I really don't, uh, I don't think you have to hang on to hoping that he's going to be that ace again because he's, he's not. How about a jump hitter? This is a hitter that might be in your free agent pool, might be on your league's trade wire, but you should jump on him if he's available. Uh, uh, Joey, I'm going to give you two. Joey Votto and Avisel Garcia. Uh, we talked about Votto a little bit earlier in the show, but these guys, they just, they have better, they're, they're just better than people think they are. Votto is old and boring, but he's also made legitimate changes and he has legitimate power and he hits for a good offense in an elite park and uh, his raw numbers this year don't look as good because he's missed some time with injury. Um, but all of his his metrics, all of his you know rate stats are really really good. And I expect Votto to be um, you know basically like a mixed league starting caliber first baseman, not just corner infielder, like probably a first baseman uh, going forward. And so I really like Votto, and I really like Abisel. And you are, the bad X is top of the charts at Fangraphs as far as the five projection systems. You've got them at a 335 on base percentage, which is higher than everybody else and uh, higher in home runs as well. So your money's where your mouth is on Avisail Garcia. And finally, how about a pitcher that we should jump on if he's available? Uh, Chris Sale. Um, Chris Sale's working through rehab now. Um, and, uh, I mean, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty with a guy who has missed so much time is coming off a serious injury, you know, even if it's just rust that he has to shake off. Um, but this is a potential league winner right here. If, if you haven't already been stashing Chris Sale, you're about to miss your window. Like, do it now. Because Chris Sale, when he's been healthy for his entire career, he's been one of the top five pitchers in baseball. Even in, even in years where you know, his ERA has been high. Like his last full season in 2019, he had a 4-4 ERA. And so some people, I mean, even at the time were like, oh, there's something wrong with Sale. He's declining. Like, no, he wasn't declining. He had a 293 XFIP. He's been super elite every single time he's ever thrown a baseball. And so I'm more than willing to take the chance that he's going to be even a fraction of that um, going forward the rest of the year, especially if he's free or cheap. Um, I, I want so much Chris Sale. 
from your lips to God's ear, I have him in TGFBI and in the Raz Slam draft, and I'm counting the minutes. I tried to get him in Tout American League, but he went to $10 in that draft, which, you know, at the time didn't seem like it was worth paying. And now, of course, everybody who didn't pay 11 is regretting it. Uh, Derek Cardi's slump. Joe Musgrove of San Diego, his pump. Cedric Mullins of Baltimore, a dump. Patrick Corbin of Washington. Two jump hitters, Joy Votto of Cincinnati. Avisail Garcia of Milwaukee. And finally, a jump pitcher, Chris Sale of Boston, on his way back. Everybody's excited about that. Have him or not, it'll be great to see him back in baseball. Uh, remind us where we can keep up with uh, Derek Hardy. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Derek Hardy. Um, you can find my projection systems at lots of different places, depending on what you want to use it for. Uh, for season long, it's over at Fangraphs. For DFS, it's at Roto Grinders. And for sports betting, it is at EV Analytics. And that's D E R E K C A R T Y. If you're looking uh, in uh, for Twitter, don't spell it D E R R I C K as I once did. It's just regular old Derek, like Derek and the Dominoes aged cultural reference. Derek, this has been absolutely fantastic. So interesting. I'm so grateful that you could take the time and I hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. Derek Carty is the developer of the Bat and the Bat X projection systems at Roto Grinders, EV Analytics, Fangraphs, and The Athletic. A quick break here, then we're back with our HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer and extra innings coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. But right now I'm going to take a quick second to let you know about how you can get a competitive edge for 2022 and have a lot of fun doing it. Yes, I'm talking about First Pitch Arizona, of course, back in person for the 26th edition of Baseball HQ's signature fantasy baseball getaway. This year, October 14th to 17th at the Sheraton Mesa Wrigleyville West in beautiful Mesa, Arizona. And you got to know with a name like Wrigleyville West, you're going to be in for some baseball. In fact, three full days of baseball packed with seminars, scouting and socializing, all within the cozy confines of Arizona Fall League Baseball. At this year's First Pitch Arizona, you can pick the brains of the nation's top fantasy baseball analysts. You can participate in fun and challenging workshops, drafts, and contests, all related to fantasy baseball, of course. You can benefit from a weekend's worth of insight-packed seminars covering scouting, sabermetrics, and strategy. And you can see some of the brightest rising stars from the minor leagues from the best seat in the stadium. As you heard earlier in the show, Ray Murphy has been able to confirm that we will have an AFL schedule, and in fact, it'll be opening weekend for the league, coinciding with our event. Your registration includes tickets to Arizona Fall League ball games, Ron Chandler's 2022 Baseball Forecaster, the Baseball HQ 2022 Minor League Baseball Analyst, a Thursday evening welcome reception, usually takes place at an AFL game, where you can hobnob with the experts and your fellow attendees. There's a free food service, a cash bar. It's really a lot of fun. And speaking of food, we have a free Saturday lunch event and free hot buffet breakfast for guests at our host hotel, the Sheraton Mesa in Wrigleyville West. And there's all kinds of handouts, instant freebies, prizes, and not to mention just about as many AFL foul balls as you want to run after. The First Pitch Arizona webpage is up, so for all the latest updates and details about First Pitch Arizona 2021, go to baseballhq.com first hyphen pitch hyphen Arizona, or just go to the right hand of the Baseball HQ homepage and click on the big, huge orange logo. That First Pitch Arizona page has all the early registration discounts, hotel discounts, and other important info. It's First Pitch Arizona. I'm not kidding. I don't get any money for telling you this. It's the best weekend of the fantasy year. And if you do see me there, please come up and say hi. We'll see you there.
Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's the frequent flyer. A commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth considering for a spot on your roster. And here with a look at Miami right-handed starting pitcher Edward Cabrera is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Perhaps Miami Marlins 23-year-old right-hander Edward Cabrera is best known for his velocity. While Cabrera's triple-digit fastball with heavy sink immediately comes to mind, perhaps Cabrera's velocity through the minors in 2021 is equally impressive. Traversing through three levels of the minors in 2021 in only eight games represents extreme velocity. Wow! Of course, this isn't Cabrera's first season of minor league ball. Nevertheless, perhaps indicating a fast track to the majors beginning on June 6, 2021 in Class A Jupiter and culminating with his arrival at AAA Jacksonville on All-Star Tuesday, July 13th, Cabrera's track record feels like a quick 100-yard dash. Additionally, Cabrera's high-octane stuff produced 46 strikeouts in only 35 innings pitched while jumping those three minor league hurdles in about a month. Wow! But he still has one more big hurdle to go to reach the show. That's why 23-year-old Miami Marlins flamethrower Edward Cabrera, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Cabrera's ascent in 2021 is amazing, but the numbers are also eye-popping, striking out over one-third of the batters he's faced this season. More specifically, Cabrera's 46 strikeouts and 35 innings pitched in 2021, though a small sample size, translates to a dominance rate of 11.8 strikeouts per nine, well above our benchmark of nine strikeouts per nine, used to identify baseball's elite pitchers. Digging deeper, something we love to do at BaseballHQ.com. According to our research, Cabrera's elite career command ratio of 3.1 strikeouts to walks in the minors, when used as a leading indicator, suggests that Cabrera likely has a 62% chance of producing the ERA below 450 for the Marlins in 2021, based upon the research and tools available to you at BaseballHQ.com. Plus, with the trade deadline looming and the Marlins in last place, perhaps Cabrera's opportunity is right around the corner. Thus, barring injury, Cabrera's promotion to the big league sounds less and less like if, and more and more like when. Perhaps note the when in this recent statement. When we bring him up, we'd like to make sure that he is ready to go when he stays up here. Marlins GM Kim Ang was quoted as saying in a July 14, 2021 Miami Herald article, and perhaps hinting an extended look for Cabrera this season. Which is precisely why perhaps you should give 23-year-old Miami Marlins flamethrower Edward Cabrera an extended look as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week I'd like to talk about the new name in Cleveland. On Friday, in case you missed the news, the Cleveland professional baseball team announced that it has chosen its new name for the future. Starting right after this season, the team will henceforth be known as the Cleveland Guardians. 
This new name came after months of speculation. Most of the suggested replacements earlier were names of former Cleveland baseball teams, the Spiders, the Blues, the Bluebirds, the Broncos, the Naps. That one came from when the team named itself after its best player, Napla Joy, the Buckeyes for obvious reasons, and the Molly Maguires named after an Irish labor rights organization, and I didn't want to get into that. I personally liked Spiders. There's a great historical connection, of course, and tons of cool graphics possibilities, especially on the uniforms. That would have been a lot of fun. Some later suggestions included the Rockers, a reference to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and, somewhat tangentially, the song Cleveland Rocks by glam rocker Ian Hunter from Mott the Hoople. I thought Cleveland Rocks would have been just a good name for the team, you might not want to address accusations of racism in baseball by choosing the name Rockers. So Guardians came as a little bit of a surprise to me, but it's actually been in the mix for a while. A Newsweek magazine story about the renaming mentioned Guardians among five others. I have to admit my first thought when I heard the name was the distinguished liberal British newspaper based in Manchester, probably because I lived in Britain and I was a newspaper man for quite a while. It's a great paper. When I came to what's left of my senses, I thought there might be some connection to the movie franchise Guardians of the Galaxy. A team of superheroes in Cleveland. Well, they're going to have to up the player payroll to make that a reality. And besides, if they wanted an action movie franchise tie-in, I think they still should have gone with Spiders. So finally, I looked into it and I found out that the name Guardians has very strong local roots. The Guardians of Traffic are iconic Art Deco statues on the Hope Memorial Bridge that crosses the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland, very close to the ballpark. The name seemed odd to me. Naming a monument in memory of Hope seems kind of fatalistic. But it turns out they're not talking about Hope the Prospect. They're talking about Harry Hope, a local stonemason who helped build the sculptures. Now, you might not have heard of Harry Hope, but you might know of his son, Leslie Towns Hope, who left Cleveland and went to Hollywood, where he had a modest bit of success as an actor and comedian. You know him better as Bob Hope. Anyway, there are eight Guardian statues facing in opposite directions on four pylons at the corners of the bridge. Each statue holds a different vehicle in its hands to represent the development and progress of ground transportation at the time. This is back in the 30s. They actually considered adding boats and planes. They had those by the 1930s, but ultimately they decided not to go so crazy. And the eight statues hold a stagecoach, a hayrick, a car, and several kinds of trucks. I wondered if the choice of the name had something to do with the D-I-A-N-S at the end of Guardians. Matches pretty well with the former name. It would have made an easy visual transition in the team's name, I thought, on their home jerseys, and it turns out I might have been right. You know, blind squirrel, acorn. The typeface for the new Guardian's name looks a lot like the font used in the previous name, and the new font for the Cleveland logo on away jerseys is a little different. More diamondy shapes than blocks, and diamond has a certain baseball connotation, right? And a tapered shape that the team says will be inspired by the font used when the team was a World Series winner. Now, if you think that means cuneiform or hieroglyphics or something, we're actually talking 1920 and 1948. And finally, in case you're wondering, the name change leaves baseball with 11 teams that are playing under their original names as major league teams. The Detroit Tigers, who started playing in the American League in 1901, are the longest-standing major league team that has never had any other home city nor any other team name. So good luck and all hail the Cleveland Guardians. 
For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davin, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 23rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 35 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Derek Carty, the developer of the BAT and the BAT-X projection systems, which you can find at Roto-Grinders, EV Analytics, Fangraphs, and The Athletic. Derek, as you heard, is a very interesting guy, very smart, and very intense about his work, and he's had a lot of really impressive results building tools for baseball and fantasy baseball. And by the way, I asked Derek, and he will be at First Pitch Arizona, so you can talk to him about that and all kinds of other things as well. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. And I'm Patrick Davitt, extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to wherever you catch your pods and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in seven days with another Friday full edition featuring a guest expert interview with the baseball professor, Andy Andres, as well as the usual great stuff. That's Andy Andres coming up next Friday on the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll see you then. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.